This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 62. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including digital strategy, people process technology, and everything else you need to know about transformation as you proceed with your journey. Uh, My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the host here today. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. This is episode number 62. Thanks for being here today. We've got a great, fun-filled, packed show for you today. We're going to cover some hot topics uh, to start the segment here today. A lot of really interesting and diverse hot topics. We cover the whole spectrum here, I feel like, from super techie all the way to super uh, fluffy change management type stuff and then everything in between. So a really good discussion here we'll have today. We have cybersecurity we're going to talk about to start or or at the opening segment. We'll talk about cybersecurity, uh, in particular, uh, some famous and now rich uh, hackers in Europe, although I suppose they're criminals now too. So it's uh, good news, bad news, I guess, for them. Uh, We're gonna talk about that here in a moment. Uh, We'll talk about a new uh, regulatory regime or a a law that's been passed in Europe and what it means to you as an organization. It's called the Digital Markets Act in Europe. We're gonna talk about that and, and some of the implications of that new law. We'll talk about how to choose the right partners in the digital age, and then we're also going to talk about empathy and how that's the key to transformation leadership. So we're going to, like I said, cover a pretty broad spectrum of stuff there in that opening Hot Topic segment. Um, And then later in the show, we're going to have Khalid Morris, who's a Director of Strategy and Transformation here at Third Stage Consulting. He's going to be on the show in a sort of a new segment or a new type of approach we're taking with uh, this particular interview as as sort of a, a beta test, if you will. And we're just going to put them in the hot seat and ask them a bunch of questions uh, to simplify it. We're going to uh, cover a couple different angles in that discussion. We'll talk about uh, careers, you know, what it, consulting careers and how to how to be successful as a consultant or as a team member uh, within a transformation. But then we're also going to talk about general digital transformation best practices as well. So we'll cover um, sort of a high-level flyover view of some best practices and lessons. We'll take uh, audience questions as well. So a pretty free-flowing, free-form sort of discussion, which is a little bit different than a lot of our interviews that are very focused on one particular topic within digital transformation. So uh, those first two segments will be a really good flyover, very broad strategic view of a lot of different topics in the, the hot topics as well as the discussion with Khalid. So we'll have Khalid on the show later. And then finally, last but not least, we'll have Amanda Patton and Christy Barber from the third stage team talking about how to scale for growth. And we're gonna come at it from two angles. One angle is is for a small business going through growth. The other perspective would be the mid-size organization and how they scale for growth. So we're gonna uh, cover both of those within the uh, conversation with Christy and Amanda later today. But before we do that, uh, let's jump into the hot topics. What have you got for us here today, Kyler? Out of Europe, we have the um, Digital Markets Act, which is kind of the first antitrust around big tech. Uh, we talk a lot about how that is regulated and what that looks like. 
And really it, it makes it so giants such as Google and Apple have to open up their services and platforms to other, other businesses. Think about like their app store. They can't just use Apple Pay to pay for apps, those types of different things. Um, and it's, it's something that is more of an anti-competitive behavior, um, mostly from U.S.-based businesses. So it will be interesting to see how that continues to play out, uh, especially since they're not headquartered there. Um, so following those laws in a digital space, uh, but still on a global policy level. So I think we'll continue to see more of these pop up and we have seen them specifically in Europe when it comes to data privacy and all kinds of things. Um, do you feel like we'll continue to see additional um, legislation around big tech and their overall influence and competition in the marketplace? Yeah, I do, not only because of where we're headed, but just, just looking back in history, it's been a it's been a solid twenty years or so of uh, consistent regulatory pushes from Europe in particular. Um, is pushing on these big tech companies. I it, the first one I can remember that seemed to be a pretty big one at the time was when uh, uh, it wasn't the EU at the time. Um, I'm trying to remember what the predecessor to the EU was, or maybe it was EU. I, I don't know. This was in the early 2000s. I, I want to say maybe it's the late 90s, but I think early 2000s when uh, Microsoft got into uh, regulatory issues in Europe because of they were tying their uh, Internet Explorer browser into the Microsoft operating system. So when you bought a computer with the Microsoft operating system, you're sort of forced into using Internet Explorer. And so they sued Microsoft and forced them to allow other browsers like Net, um, I'm drawing a complete blank, Net's, uh, Net, oh gosh, Net, I want to say Netscape, Netscape, I think it is. They're not around anymore, whoever it is, but that browser that was the main competitor. And I feel terrible that I cannot remember the name because I, I used that browser, whatever it was, because I didn't like Microsoft and I, Sometimes still don't using. I still don't like using Microsoft Office products if I can help it, even though I have to. Um, but anyway, the, the so it started back you know twenty years ago at least, at least from what I remember. So I imagine that's going to be an ongoing battle, especially as these tech companies get bigger and more influential. And inevitably, as they get bigger and more influential, they tend to throw their weight around, their scale around, and and I think that's where you bump up against these sort of regulatory issues. So I, I imagine that's going to continue, and these tech companies have only gotten bigger. So I imagine it'll probably just accelerate over time yeah and it's very it's a great example because one of the examples referenced here is on the iphone so for example you can't delete safari off of your iphone you can add other browsers but this would cause for users to have that choice for whatever applications are on their device so you know definitely a, a very interesting um piece of legislation and it will be interesting on how it's enforced as well um that type of thing and what the penalties will be, you know, a lot of times there's financial, pretty big financial penalties, as well as um, actions that they force these tech companies to, to make. So, so that's a good, on one hand, it's it's bad news for these big tech companies, but it does create opportunity for other, other uh, app providers as well and payment providers too, from what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that, um, we are talking about how to choose the right um, partners for your digital ecosystem. And a lot of this is because over the past decade, we've seen a lot of, of those big companies enter into different spaces, like Google into banking, Tesla into car insurance, Apple into the fitness market, those types of things where they're crossing into other industries. 
So a lot of times they need a partner to help them do that, specifically from a data side or just an overall business strategic partner. Um, so I, I found this interesting study that showed the different types of partnerships in the digital aids, and I wanted to kind of run it by you. It's almost like a four-part four matrix. Um, so we have one category that's called satellites. It's um, app developers. It's um, kind of farmers to John Deere type of scenarios, if you will. Um, they a lot of times have the asymmetries among those partners that they're working with, but they lack um, oversight or lack specific fun functionalities such as data management or anything like that. Um, and then we have the complementers, which would be the system integrators, the specialized app developers. Um, it's kind of like um, the insurance companies for Tesla, the banks for Google. So they complement the business by kind of packaging up and bringing it to the other bigger business. Um, a lot of times what the risk here is just the overall brand association. So like Alibaba here um, and its overall copywriting issues with um, intellectual property and those types of things and leveraging that partner base um, with your overall growth in business. There's also um, the third one is suppliers. So we're talking about kind of um, med office for airline companies, pharmacies for Amazon. So again, they supply the overall goods. Um, and then strategic partners. So this would be like Waymo for car companies um, that that don't supply the cars, but they supply the data integration for th those navigation services. So those are kind of how the study um, spliced up four different types of partners. And I specifically wanted to ask you about um, the complementers because we see a lot of that in um, software in the software industry when we see things like bringing on a bolt-on application um, to different business. So I, I wondered if you felt like that was going to be a trend is for bigger companies to invest in specialized complementers, if you will, or best of breed solutions um, in this kind of overall digital ecosystem. Yeah, <clears throat> it's a good question. I do think that's going to become an increasingly common trend. Uh, partially because technology is so, um, there's just so many options, technology is going in so many different directions that it, it puts a lot of pressure on the single big technology providers like the big ERP systems or the big, you know, off the shelf systems that are trying to be everything to everyone. It, that's, there's constantly a tension between those big providers and then the small niche providers that are solving specific solutions and building a better mousetrap than the bigger tech companies can. So I think that dynamic is going to create more uh, of an opportunity for aggregators and complementers and people that can integrate all this stuff together in, in a best of breed environment. I think uh, you're going to see a lot more of that um, as we go forward. And we're seeing that with our clients too, just uh, in everyday industries, you're seeing a lot of the best of breed solutions like your workday on the HR tech side, you have Salesforce CRM, you have financial systems, you have warehouse and supply chain systems. And there's all these systems out there can do, do this stuff really well, but then you've got to figure out how to tie it all together. And the fact that you can integrate these different systems much better now than you could 10 or 20 years ago, I think creates a lot of opportunity for these best of breed niche providers. Absolutely. And speaking of best of breed, I have, um, I love these um, supply chain clickbait articles because I'm like so 
I just fall for them every time. Like this one is called um, Supply Chain Crisis is about to get a lot worse. And it's like always like doomsday type of scenario. But I had this, this quote in here um, that comes from a, a professor of supply chain strategy at Cranfield University in the UK. Um, and he talks about the issue and I, I wanna read it to you. Um, he said, we used to occasionally have black swan events. The problem at the moment is we have a whole flock of black black swans coming at us. <laughs> so he gave a statistic that's pretty interesting too. Um, he said that managing a supply chain used to involve about 80% of dealing with predictability and 20% in coping with surprises. And now those metrics are completely flipped. So we, we see things not only like the issues with the labor market, but also the COVID crackdown in China um, that's been the latest outbreak. And then obviously the broken supply chain because of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict as well um, that stops a lot of those domestic products going from um, Europe to Asia, those types of things, even cutting out the whole Middle East. So I know we know the supply chain is broken, um, but I wondered if there are ways that we could utilize things like emerging technologies, predictive analytics, and things like that to, you know, help identify any breakage and what you would recommend for um, businesses to get ready for that. So knowing that there's this 80%, you know, volatility within the marketplace, what are some tactics that they can do today to make sure that they're somehow, you know, surviving a very broken supply chain? Well, I think the, the key is to anticipate it or at least identify the risks of, of those black swans potentially hitting your, your supply chain. You know, no one can predict the future with 100% certainty, especially with some of these unusual black swan events like, say, a big global pandemic that's never happened before, um, you know, or, a, you know, a once in a generation sort of war in, in Europe. So, you know, that's the sort of... Uh, the thing you have to just recognize that there are some macro events that are unpredictable, but you know what, what it, this is a good opportunity for supply chains and organizations to do is identify where those risks are. You know, where do you already have bottlenecks? Maybe you had bottlenecks, you probably had bottlenecks and risks all along. You just didn't have to worry too much about it because the risk was so low. But now when you say, okay, maybe the risk of this black swan event in normal times might be, you know, less than 1% or whatever it is, but now, you know, that sort of jumps up to a really high number. Um, and it might actually go up even more. So what the key is, is to identify where are the biggest vulnerabilities and risks within your supply chain and how can you start fixing those proactively rather than waiting until the black swan event comes. And I think that's maybe one of the big lessons that we've learned from all of this is just because something's working today and it's working like a, a well-oiled machine, um, a la the global supply chains of the past um, that you didn't have to worry about, really a whole lot of geopolitical uh, tension. I mean, since the Iraq war, you haven't really had uh, in the last 20 years, there hasn't been a ton of uh, a ton of geopolitical tension, but now you do have geopolitical tension. You have pandemics. You have other dynamics and factors that are ripple effects from those two events. Um, so you sort of have to plan a little bit more for it and uh, be prepared for that volatility. And the good news is that analytical or uh, predictive analytics and supply chain tools, business intelligence, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence. You know, those are all different types of emerging technologies that can help. Um, help identify and anticipate where some of those risks might be well before they become a problem. Yeah, and it sounds like there's opportunities, I know based on your recommendation and our team's recommendation to get ready 
as an organization to utilize those tools. You know, for example, if, if you don't have clean data, there's not a ton of point or there's not a, a ton of relevance for something like predictive analytics because it won't have anything to predict. Um, it um, is something that you need to utilize as a organization um, to have those foundations. So uh, I think there's a lot that organizations can do today to almost prepare to utilize those emerging technologies. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And then switching gears a little bit for our last hot topic, as you said, we, we you know covered the full scope today. Um, I was researching a, a survey done and a study done by Catalyst that talked about empathy and leadership. Um, and I wanted to share, it, it was pretty powerful, impactful, the overall um, indication of empathetic leaders and what that means for the workforce. Um, so they, they broke it into... Um, five categories, and I'll just read the stats. So innovation, so 61% of employees um, are more likely to be innovative when their leaders express empathy. 76% um, of those surveyed um, were likely to be more engaged with their leadership if there's empathy. Um, retention, over 57% uh, of women in particular said that they valued companies that have empathetic leaders and were likely to not leave, um, which is you know an important statistic, especially for this great reshuffle. Um, inclusivity, over 50% of people say that empathetic leaders um, lead to a more inclusive culture. And then work life, which was the biggest one, um, when leaders were empathetic, over 86% of those respondents reported that they were able to navigate the demands of their work and life. And I know in recent episodes, we've talked about those those stressors. Um, and even in a recent Digital Stratosphere podcast, our, our sister podcast, we talked about the role of um, social awareness and leadership as well. Uh, so I wanted to just get your reaction to that. You know, you do lead the organization as the CEO. And how do you make sure that you are empathetic or um, actually have empathy within your style to kind of hit all of these boxes? And what? And a follow-on question to that, why do you think right now it's become so important and empathy has become such a huge talking point within the business community? No, so I think um, as far as how you're, uh, how you're empathetic, I mean, I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but it, it it's just, I think... Uh, um, couple things. One is just asking a lot of questions and listening and not jumping to conclusions, which is, you know, can be hard to do. Um, you know, especially the more experienced you get, the more people you manage or lead, the more you think you know the answer of why someone, why someone might be resisting change or why someone isn't fully engaged in a project or in, a, in their work or whatever. So I think it's just not assuming the worst or jumping to conclusions and really trying to understand um, and, and ask questions. Um, now I already forgot the other 18 questions you had. What was that? What was part two of your... Yeah, so what was that part was two the how. And then I asked kind of the why. Why do you think it's become, you know, such a, a huge trend in leadership right now? Yeah. So I think the reason it's become such a big deal is because, I mean, I mean, there's, a, there's so many things at play right now. I mean, you have... Um, I think it was already maybe building up to this. And then you get a pandemic where we're all isolated or a lot of us are isolated and going through massive changes on a personal level. And it's just creating strains in our 
society, you know, in our social fabric, in our different cultures throughout the world, it's creating these strains. And at the same time, you're disconnected. So it's, it's sort of like people are craving a way to connect. They're craving human connection and understanding. Um, so I think that was, you know, that's another part of it. And then you have, uh, other societal trends, like you mentioned the inclusion and there's a whole DEI movement, the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, you know, looking to diverse, you know, diverse teams and making sure everything's equitable, you're being inclusive and accepting of different types of people. And you made a really good point that I've never thought of, but I think is brilliant in that um, it almost feels like the, the inclusion and the need to focus on inclusion, maybe we're focusing on the wrong thing there. Not that we don't want inclusion, but maybe that's a symptom that we're not getting to the root cause. Maybe the root cause is we just aren't empathizing. Maybe we just need to understand rather than just not, you know, because I don't think, I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I, I don't want to offend anyone by saying this because I could be absolutely wrong, but I don't think there's a ton of leaders out there that intentionally want to exclude people or have built systems that inadvertently exclude people. But I do think that the lack of empathy and listening and understanding, that probably, to your point, does create a certain amount of lack of inclusion, lack of diversity, um, because we're looking for people that fit the way we think. And I don't want to have to deal with having to ask questions and understand a different point of view because it's easier and it's a path of least resistance just to hire someone who thinks just like me and then doesn't have to, I don't have to understand why they're different or why they think differently or whatever. Um, so maybe it really is, uh, maybe it is the empathy that, that is the root cause of why we have these DEI issues. I don't know. That's, that's a brilliant point though. I feel like we should make a, a separate, we could do a separate podcast on that or a separate uh, video. on. Yeah. That. Yeah. We'll have to call up um, Jed Hafer, get him over here and talk about some, some empathy, but um I think it, it all goes back to that why, and we could talk about that from a human perspective, from a technology perspective, and um, from a business perspective, which I think is a, a great segue into your conversation with Khalid. Um, you know, your kind of rapid fire. I feel like you bo both were in the hot seat um, with all of those great questions that our audience members had during our live stream. Um, so I'm excited, you know, to hear from him and, and really dive in. Yeah, and, and to be fully candid, actually, Khalid and I were talking shortly after we recorded that live stream earlier today. And uh, I always like to be transparent, especially when there's, especially when things turn out okay, it's fun to share the backstory. <laughs> and that, that live cast actually, or live stream uh, was actually a really good one. It was one of our highest rated ones in terms of people that attended it live and the people that, the level of engagement we had. But we just completely... Uh, plan that and came up with that last, like late last night. Like I, I didn't have a guest that it, we had a, a scheduling issue with a guest today. So it was sort of a last minute, Hey, let's try this. It's going to be free form. There's no real specific focus. Let's just call it consultant hot seat. And it actually worked really well. In fact, I kind of want to do it again, either with him or others or both. Um, so anyway, a little backstory of what happened there, but it turned into a really good fluid organic conversation that covered a lot of ground and sort of, uh, Wandered all over the place, but not in an aimless way. It was very focused on digital transformation and uh, careers within digital transformation. So it was a, it's a really good conversation. So we'll we'll have that conversation with Khalid when we come back. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The 
The bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 62. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're here every Wednesday with new episodes on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find new episodes of this show on all the audio podcast platforms, whatever uh, audio podcast platform you prefer, whether it's Google, uh, Amazon, Spotify, Pandora, whatever it might be. Check us out there, subscribe, uh, share this video or this podcast with others. We'd love to get the word out and if you find this of value, we'd appreciate any uh, help you can provide just getting the word out and sharing it with your, your colleagues and peers. I'm excited for our next guest who has been on the podcast one other time. He's a relatively new uh, team member or a new addition to the third stage team as we've uh, navigated our tremendous growth over the last couple of years. And he's a recent director. We hired him as a director of strategy and transformation in our U.S. office. Um, but even though he's new to third stage. He started, I think, in the fourth quarter of last year. Um, even though he's new to third stage, he's actually someone that worked with me about 10 years ago in my previous company that I had started and run for uh, 13 years. So he worked with me there for a couple years, uh, went off and did some other things within consulting, and now we're back working together. So I thought it'd be good to have him on the show to talk about uh, stuff related to uh, transformation in general, rather than honing in on one specific topic or really going deep into one area we wanted to do sort of a flyover of digital transformations in general, as well as an overview of the differences between working at different types of consulting firms and some of the pros and cons of different types of consulting firms, just because he and I have both worked at a, a variety of firms. And so we thought it'd be uh, fun to cover that. And then, of course, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, diverse questions that we get from the audience as well. So uh, with that all being said, Khalid, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah, good to good to have you. And you've you've been on our podcast before. I think one other time you were on the Transformation Ground Control podcast talking about um, the analogy between sports and winning and digital transformation and change in general. Um, so what I wanted to do today, though, is we were going to talk about this whole topic of just sort of like a consultant hot seat. We're putting you in the hot seat. Although at the end of the day, I think you and I are both going to be in the hot seat. Hopefully, if things go well, the audience will put us both in the hot seat, and we can sort of answer their questions. Um, but before we do that, maybe just tell us a little bit about uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do here at Third Stage? What's your background and upbringing? Just sort of that high level overview of who you are. Uh, sure. Uh, my background is actually finance. I I, um, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, um, South Central Los Angeles, California, to be uh, exact. Um, uh, and um, I'm I played sports. 
um, as, as, as you well know, and I ended up kind of going to school away from California, away from Los Angeles and um, Louisiana. And I really was interested in finance. I was, I was always a good math student and um, um, I, I settled on business and it went more economics and, and math. And so I came out, you know, doing, you know, accounting, financial analytics and that sort of thing. And so that was, that's always my base. I always think of myself that way as even though we're doing so much in the tech space now, um, I've always thought of myself more as a financial guy. And um, I did that for a number of years before I went to, before I moved here to Denver, uh, to attend the University of Denver, uh, where I actually went to pursue more finance, more real estate. I actually went for real estate. I, I love the real estate program at the University of Denver. So I studied uh, uh, real estate and construction management at DU. And I uh, also got my MBA. And I thought I was going into real estate development until I met you. And you kind of pulled me more <laughs> along that consulting line. It was a, it was a, it was a tough space in uh, the real estate world uh, at the time with Lehman Brothers and and the likes. And and you know I've been sort of doing consulting ever since. Um, that was uh, yeah we're getting old here, but damn near twenty years ago. Um, uh, and uh, so it's been a great ride. Uh, I've been doing it across. ERP across uh, business intelligence, across strategic planning, budgeting, forecasting, um, uh, that sort of thing. So I, I've been exposed to the back ends of transactional databases, analytical databases, being a part of building out some of those models um, uh, to really drive different parts of business needs. And uh, so it's been a pretty broad experience and I've been able to do it at some uh, great uh, consulting groups, obviously, yeah, here at Third Stage, and uh, you know, you know, previously um, with you, but also even larger groups um, like um, the Accentures of the world, and 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 even at the software level, kind of you know, working with uh, a bunch of different uh, software groups, and and constantly being exposed. So for me, it's it's been a ride. I've kind of gone from more of a functional resource to a technical resource to now here at third stage, being able to um, uh, really work in, in a more advisory capacity and really help clients through making some of these critical decisions. Because it's it's amazing how you make a decision uh, like, oh, we want to move in one ERP system or, or the other and, and, and the ramifications of that. It's, it's I guess, equivalent to what college you're going to go to or what major you're deciding to to to, um, to to have and the ramifications of that as it relates to the job market as it relates to all of these other dominoes that sort of fall well that that's sort of what happens when you make a technology decision and you make a bad decision it sort of lives with you for a very long time and so uh, it's really great to to be able to work with companies early and uh, give them that kind of strategic insight and uh, really help them navigate their journeys and and it's good to kind of see them grow and develop as a result. Yeah. And you, you've got a pretty broad background, as you're alluding to here, not just in terms of different industries and verticals you've worked in, but as you alluded to as well, you you, uh, you have sort of a unique mix between that strategy, you know, sort of that strategic view of consulting as well as down in the down in the weeds with with the technical mm -hmm. aspects of business intelligence and data and some of the things we'll get to. And I actually want to come back to that point, because I think that's a really important point that gives you a pretty unique perspective that a lot of us don't have, um, you know, sort of that 
high level and low level uh, consulting experience. Um, so what was, I think you alluded to this a little bit, but I want to go a little bit deeper into it is when you look at your finance and real estate background, um, I know you may try to blame me for this and, and I think you already did, but, but why, <laughs> what, did you, what made you shift from finance and real estate to consulting? I know that was around the time you and I met. And then I, I think I, I, may, I may have been involved in trying to convince you to <laughs> do consulting at the time, but what ultimately led you to um, decide that, hey, I want to try this consulting thing back way back when? Well, originally it was opportunity. Um, the opportunities were thin and it is just the real estate market was extremely thin. And I wasn't banking on that. You don't foresee uh, a collapse of an industry. And, um, you know, when that Lehman Brothers, you know, trigger sort of happened and the financial world started to, um, you know, sort of shrink uh, in that way, it was a dramatic uh, impact on the real estate market. There was no construction projects. There were no real estate projects. I had one real estate development opportunity. And um, I also had um, another uh, quasi opportunity that I was working through coming out of DU and both opportunities weren't that great. And and the, op the options were sort of getting thin. So you you it was a real opportunity to kind of do some consulting. Um, I was looking for that uh, in that uh, I needed something and I didn't really expect to have longevity in what it was. Um, you know, funny enough, you know, the, 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 the link between us and kind of getting in the consulting world was built around finance and, and, and the need at that time, you, you kind of had this project and you really needed some financial acumen and someone to be a liaison for the finance group. You needed someone to talk to, to, to those people who understood their language and that, and since that was my background, that part was easy for me. Um, that's kind of the way it started. But what I what I learned was you know, it, IT and and real estate have a lot of parallels as it relates to project management. Um, you know, you, you, you can really run, I, I, you know, a lot of real estate projects run almost like a waterfall, uh, uh, you know, uh, implementation. And and so when, when I sort of sort of got submerged into the rhythm of um, technical development, I uh, almost felt familiar. You know, it, 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 it felt it did it, it, a lot of the things I love about real estate development is nothing is there and you're working through a development cycle to sort of build something. You're, you're working, whether it's a blight zone or a vacant land or an unused building, sort of you get an opportunity to to change something. And the same is happening on technology. Uh, nothing is there. You're sort of designing from scratch. And so you're building, and there's so many sort of indirect hidden ramifications as it relates to business processes and the links there that uh, you're, you're making a significant change um, in the application of, um, of a business, the function of a business. And um, that part for me is was, was thrilling. So I ended up getting a lot of thrill out of working with technical projects and um, accomplishing or completing some of these implementation deliveries in the same way that and it was a shorter cycle because real estate will take you years you know um, technical development can 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 be shorter cycles depending on what you're doing uh, so that's kind of i guess what sort of changed so when the real estate market came back around i kind of was like i'm good i kind of can do this i kind of uh, enjoy where i'm going with um with career and just sort of start to do some real estate stuff on the side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good, good balance for sure. And, and I think it's a good reminder how important that 
real world experiences and that real world understanding is to be a to be a good consultant. Yeah. Um, and before I jump into a sort of a career related question or a follow up career related question, I want to just turn back to the audience here and just sort of uh, get to some of the comments we have here. I, I had asked the question, where are you all joining from today? And a lot of you commented. Um, and just to give everyone a sense of where people are joining from across the four or five live streams that we're uh, streaming to, uh, we've got someone from uh, Malcolm from the UK, uh, Photon from London, uh, Jerry from Toronto, Kyler's joining us from Denver, um, an unknown user from Johannesburg, South Africa, um, Ed from Ghana, Deborah from France, Parisa from Parker, we've got someone from the Netherlands, Charlotte, London, Paris again, Paris again. Toronto. So a lot of, a lot of global audience here today. So really appreciate everyone, everyone joining. Um, we also have Sam Graham joining from Spain and Sam's one of my favorite guests because he's, he's very engaged with our, with our content. And, uh, also wanted to give a special hello to, uh, Christian who's joining from Vietnam. Uh, this is his first time listening to a live stream. So thanks for, for being here today, Christian. I hope you enjoy it and I hope we live up to your uh, expectations. Thanks for, for trying out uh, one of our live streams for the first time. Um, and then here's just an interesting question that you might, uh, or it's not really a question, it's more of a comment that you might find interesting, Khalid, from YouTube. Um, this is, I want to get into real estate development too, but want to build my career in consulting first and save up my income. Is that sort of what you did? Did you uh, kind of use consulting as a way to generate income that you could then invest in real estate? Or I don't want to get too far into the real estate world. but I mean, mean kind of, you know, it, 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 it definitely was. Consulting income was, was, was good. It was different. I wasn't. I was the most I made when I started um, to, to, to go in consulting. And if you have, if you're smart about your finances, you can save a little bit. So um, that happened. I mean, the real estate market is a lot different now uh, than uh, it was uh, then. So I think it was a lot easier to do more of uh, certainly the kind of investments I was doing um, uh, or the moves that I was making real estate wise then. But, you know, now it might be a little bit harder, but yeah, you certainly can do that. I, I you know, it will just replace consulting with anything, right? You can right. save, kind of make plans, long-term plans to sort of save to get to a certain amount and then invest um, when you, when you sort of reach your target or you have enough to sort of play in, in that sandbox. Yeah. Yep. That's good advice. And maybe another question for the audience here is, you know, what, it, what, field are you in? Are you a consultant? Are you, you know, do you work for industry? What industry are you in? I'd love to hear from all of you sort of what you do just to give us a sense of uh, what, what sorts of industries you all work in. So just drop in the chat if you don't mind. Uh, what What is it you do? What industry are you in? What's your role? Um, what are you looking to do? Uh, anything you want to share with us would be super interesting and helpful uh, there. So um, back to the questions I had, and then I'll, I'll shift. I'm going to kind of go back and forth between questions I have and then questions from the from the live audience here. Um, the question I had is, um, how is working at a company like Third Stage different from working at some of the really big consulting firms? And you didn't mention any, I don't think he mentioned specific names, but you've worked for a couple of the really big, larger, well-known yeah. consulting firms. And we're a smaller consulting firm of 50 people versus, you know, 50,000 or hundreds of thousands of people that work at some of these bigger firms you've worked at. So how is it different, you know, working at Third Stage or a smaller firm like Third Stage versus one of the big guys? Uh, it's, I think it's different in two major ways. Um, well, potentially three, but, but I think two significant. One is uh, the kind of client. Uh, so the clients that we work on here at Third Stage, uh, even our large clients are uh, very different than 
um, the kind of clients that you'd work with like in a big four once you're in the big four where your clients are ginormous. They're, they're almost little governments and uh, the projects are extremely complicated uh, as a result. And you're on these huge teams um, where, you know, you know, one project might have, you know, 40, 50 people kind of, uh, you know, working and it, it turns into a subculture on the project itself to where, you know, you, you got to deal with your own, just like you have to deal with sort of the client. And so there's a d degree of complexity there. there, there there's a degree of culture there um, that uh, can be, you know, those projects are long. And, uh, you know, it, it, it can, in some cases, be toxic. Um, uh, in other cases, sort of, you know, it pushes you because there's um, a certain level of complexity that extends beyond the application's bandwidth. Sometimes those choices are bad. So you might have an application that you're trying to build is really not a good fit for, um, for that organization. And so the projects are just all complicated. Like, they're just all extremely complicated with um you know just uh, just tons of difficulty around with respect to trying to fit uh you know uh, a square peg in a circle or or, or or something like that so you have challenges there and i think you also here you know with, with a smaller company you, you you have more engagement so i think the engagement points i think at larger companies are different um uh, you don't have the same uh, you, opportunity to build the kind of relationship with a client. Our clients here at Third Stage are, you know, we just have great relationships, and it's not really specific to you know, like one person. It'll just be, you know, most of the projects that I've been on here at the small level. You get an opportunity to really talk a client through, to really work with a client through their decision making process, and really help them get to where they need to be, because that's the end targets like we're all pushing in in a in a in a in a window here that sort of lends to client making such and such type of decision and it's not really like that with large companies you know you know you don't get those opportunities it's not about engagement it's about reaction so they're very very different experiences um, but if you're more into relationships and you're more into in-game and benefit to the um, uh, to the to the client and the smaller kind of consulting world kind of works more. So for me, it's more satisfying than um, kind of with the larger companies where you're just submerged in politics and grievance and, you know, bureaucracy and complexity. And, you know, you just feel like you're fighting a battle every single day. Yeah. And you, you're, uh, you and I both have experience with the big, with some of the big firms, but your experience is more, more recent and probably more relevant. And, and I think you spent more time at these larger firms than I did. Um, I didn't last very long. So you, 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 you know, okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success.
learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We're here with Khalid Morris talking about digital transformation as well as consulting within digital transformation. You know, you, you bring up a really interesting point that I hadn't, I've never really thought about it or articulated in that way that you just said around how uh, you didn't say this part, but digital transformations, if you, if you back up, transformations are just complex no matter who it is, like no matter what kind of company it is right. that you work for or no matter what kind of consulting partner you, you work with. Um, so the last thing you want to do is further complicate things by bringing in your own internal politics and your own complexities as a consulting firm. And I think that's what happens with a lot of these bigger firms is, you know, I remember back early in my career, just the, the amount of time we spent um, just dealing with internal stuff and just internal politics and jockeying and positioning, by the way, we're billing our clients for all this time too, which is super um, yeah. unethical in my opinion, but so you're dealing with your own internal garbage and you're billing clients for that. And you're just adding to the complexity. But I'm curious to hear, though, you didn't mention this directly, but I think you're, you're sort of you're sort of uh, circling it a little bit. But the whole idea of, of independence, I, I know you talked about not wanting to fit a square peg into a round hole with technology or the solutions that you're developing. But how does independence or bias, like, you know, third stage being sort of the independent uh, option, there's bias involved in other, you know, some of these larger firms. How, how does that all factor into transformation and just your overall experience as a consultant? When you're on the delivery side, um, you know, it, everything is sort of handed to you. So you get pulled into projects. You're either called by some senior director somewhere and say, hey, we want you to lead this work stream or, um, you know, do this on this project engagement. And this is what we're doing. We are implementing this application for this particular client and we, we would like you to do it. So there's no conversation about what makes sense what doesn't necessarily make sense it is just handed to you almost like a briefcase and then you go and you go do it and it and, and, and i've never been on i don't know about you in your big four experience i've never been on a project um uh with with any of those kind with with, with any with any client at a big four company where i thought to myself this is the right application for this client never <laughs> it has always been it has always been why would this client choose this application for what they need to do so it almost was no thought you know done behind it um, behind what this digital strategy is and how it meshes it's you know you're 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 working with some department or some component of this huge behemoth and you know you're trying to implement something that you know doesn't fit well so you end up having to do customizations you end up having to go outside of the breadth of the depth of the application in order to do a bunch of things that um, the application was never built to do and so uh, that's where you kind of get into that and then you you mesh that with a army of people, whether it's 40, 50 people, I, and, 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 you know, the idea that they like each other is, is, is funny. They don't, you know, you have 50 people on these projects and clients don't think about this because they're like, well, we're paying this group and, 
Now they, they can't stand each other for whatever reason, internal politics, there's some sort of ladder that they're chasing or, or, or whatever. And so it really turns toxic. And, and, and it, it, to your point, it makes something that's already difficult, way more difficult. And yeah. um, that's where um, it, it just becomes a drain and it's hard to sort of, to sort of live or be sustainable in those kind of environments. Yeah. Yeah, it is highly stressful. And I think that's why most people, you know, only last, I think the average is about two years that people last. Oh, yeah. Two, three at the most. That was about my limit. I, and, you know, after that point, and, you know, you just start looking for the window to jump out of. Right. <laughs> right. You know, your story about how, you know, why are we forcing this technology into this situation that it doesn't work for? It reminds me of my my first project was, was a really long project um, with a really big Fortune 500 company that makes... Um, at the time, they made uh, large cabinets of telco equipment. So they were highly tailored. Um, they were, they were cabinets with um, with electronic equipment that would go into it, and each piece of the equipment was serialized. So that you had this whole serial serialization hierarchy mm -hmm. that you had to manage to. And they were trying to implement SAP, and SAP uh, at the time couldn't handle that serialization hierarchy. I think it, it's better at it now. But I remember we did all this reengineering and customization of the software. And to your point, it got to the point where we were spending so much time and money trying to fix this one problem that you're like, why are we why are we force fitting this technology? Has anyone thought about some other solution that might be better? <laughs> it didn't even occur to us because we were an SAP partner and our job was to implement SAP. Um, and you see that all the time, that dynamic I, of, you know, sort you know, of. Like the, after um, after our uh, initial kind of engagement, I went on and I was working with this telecom group. And this told me everything I just really helped shape what I, my understanding of what was happening in the industry. Um, they spent $5 million to answer a question that we already gave them the answer to as it relates to the application. It was essentially, you know, we, you know, they wanted to um, uh, know if what application could do something that an, another application already did. <laughs> and we said, no, it can't. And I said, well, we won't know for certain unless we do all of this work and blah, 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 blah. And they said, okay, well, let's go through that work. <laughs> well, guess what the answer was? Yeah, no, we definitely can. <laughs> so why spend that much money to kind of go through that, that particular answer? And then after we gave them that answer, they ended up going with the same application that uh, we told them wouldn't work. Uh, so to no surprise, it didn't work. So so, you know, that gets to that fit. Like, are we trying to solve the problem here? Are we actually trying to understand what is going to be the right technical fit and, and kind of move from there? Or are we just spending money for no reason, right? And I think that those are your two options. And, 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 and oftentimes there's com competing interests where you have a slice of an organization, maybe the finance group that thinks about it one way and you have an executive team that thinks about it another way. And there's no real alignment between um, the different fractions, uh, factions. So that's where it's very, very important that you have an aligned digital strategy and, and that everybody understands what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, if, if, if that's the case, then you can make technological decisions that are you know, financially efficient for your organization that have long-term viability and uh, that meet the needs of your organization. 
I mean, because that should be the goal. No one's spending money to spend it. Otherwise, you end up bringing one part, doesn't work with another part. It's like you end up having this car with like all of these different parts in it. And, you know, you it, it struggles. It's it's like, yeah, you have a Ferrari engine with some, you know, Honda tires and, you know, some, you know, uh, an 18 wheeler brake pads. It's like, it's like, what are we doing here? You know, what kind of car is this? And, and why, and, and what do you need this car to do? So, um, you know, I think that an organization can get a lot smarter and um, really start with um, that technical strategy and make sure everyone's on the same page. If that means getting, you know, socializing, getting getting the buy-in and talking to the organization to understanding what um, their goals are, what your goals are, and, and, and making sure all of those things are aligned before you make technological decisions, then go do that. Then decide on what technology makes the most, most sense for your organization. Right, yeah, yeah, that's sound advice. And actually there's, a, there's some questions coming in that's, uh that's more related to kind of how to move forward with transformations and some questions specific to transformation in general. But before I get to that one, I want to get to a couple of just a couple of career related things, and then we'll, we'll shift gears to the more general uh, digital transformation discussion. But um, just to sort of uh, come back to the audience here, um, some of the responses to the question I had, which is, what do you do? You know, what industry are you all in? Um, Eric is a recruiter for tech consultants. He's on, uh, he's watching on LinkedIn. Um, we have uh, Sean, data security, data security and digital transformation. Um, we have uh, Sweda, who's working in HCM tech consulting, looking to shift into digital transformation consulting, maybe more of a broader digital transformation uh, purview or role. Um, we have uh, Mahmood, who's an ERP consultant. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Back to Transformation Ground Control. We're here with Khalid Morris talking about digital transformation as well as consulting within digital transformation. Uh, we have Deborah in Paris, who's a recently certified Oracle specialized with background in operations project management. Um, congratulations, Deborah. I've actually had a chance to meet mm -hmm. Deborah when I was in Paris a, a few weeks ago. So, um, very good uh, consultant caliber type person if anyone's interested. And actually, I'm going to come back to a question that I saw somewhere here. Um, from Deborah, and here it is. So uh, this question is from Deborah on LinkedIn, which is how do we find opportunities with smaller companies? Most job offers I see are with the big consulting firms. So do you have any thoughts on that, Khalid? I, I know you and I had a relationship that sort of led to you joining uh, my two smaller firms over the years, but what, uh, 
what in general, what advice would you have for someone who maybe doesn't want to look at the big firms or maybe they just want to look at their options with smaller firms? How would you recommend they? I mean, there's there, there are tiers. I guess as you study the uh, industry, you'll see the tiers. I mean, there's there's only really, you know, four or five, you know, big consulting firms um, that we're sort of talking about that big four sort of space. There's those guys kind of and then there's a bunch of mid-level uh, consulting companies and they're smaller ones. So, you know, understanding the tiers and the organizations, just just sort of sort of doing research. And when you start doing research in the consulting field that you're looking for, you're going to see those uh, consulting groups start to sort of pop up, uh, bubble up. Um, and, you know, those opportunities nowadays, especially uh, on the independent side, you can start lending yourself. So, you know, in, in some spaces, you can even start to lend your service on a contractual basis for the things that that, that, that you do well. So, um, you know, that that's also an option. So, uh, you know, there's 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 tiers, though. And, um, you know, as you start to kind of put your name out there, as you start to sort of research um, uh, the fields, I think that's where. Uh, you'll you'll sort of get those names and because there's so many different ones. I don't know that I can specifically point out one thing, especially at the mid level and at the small. Um, um, but I think it'll be more specific to what you're trying to do in consulting. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thought I have, too, is, you know, LinkedIn is such a powerful tool for meeting or, or finding uh, companies and people within the companies that are making hiring decisions. So that if you reach out to people on LinkedIn and, and uh you know, that's a great tool. But one thing I will say is, you know, I get a ton of emails every day on LinkedIn and through email that I just don't have time to respond to or even look at in some cases, people that want jobs or people that are interested in in uh, doing work uh, for us. And, and the thing that catches my attention, though, is first of all, persistence. You know, if someone that emails me once never emails me again, I you know, it's probably going to get lost in the shuffle. But someone that uh, emails me multiple times, not in a, a harassing kind of a way, but more like, Hey, just want to make sure you saw my note. I'm really interested in, in just continuous, uh, follow-up in, in a eager way. You know, that's something you look for when you're hiring. Uh, but also, um, you know, looking for other ways to engage with that person on social media. Um, I've had people, including someone who's on this live stream here today, who, who reached out to me before, and then we engaged on social media. She would, come to events and like stuff and comment on stuff. So she just sort of like was on my radar because I keep seeing her name and I keep seeing that she's commenting on stuff and she's in my live streams. And so there's stuff like that where that will get attention of of your uh, of people you might be trying to, to join. And, and and also, you know, more one other thing of advice I'd have is just offer to help, like offer to be instead of saying, hey, I want a really high salary job and I want I want you to pay me a ton of money make it more about like how you want to help the company and maybe it's helping on a part-time basis on a contract basis low risk to the company or you maybe you want to be an intern and just sort of learn a little bit more and and, and just get involved in some way so if you can kind of make it low risk and low pressure to the person that you're reaching out to i think that's another you know another word of advice i'd have just as someone who does get inundated with with inquiries about about jobs and whatnot um so that's 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 good advice um Okay. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit and go to a, um, more of a, more of a, we're going to shift gears maybe and go a little bit in more into digital transformation as a, as a whole. And we can always come back to career stuff as well. I don't mean to cut that off because I know a lot of you on the live stream are interested in that. Um, but there is a question that I had here that I'm trying to find. We, we have a lot of really good comments here. So thank you for all the engagement. The only bad news is now it's hard for me to go back and find the, find the comments I wanted. Um, 
Okay. Here's a question I wanted to get to, Khalid. I want to see what you think here. Um, this is from Lawrence on LinkedIn. And he asked the question of, I work in a company with a very old ERP system and no CRM system. Would you advise to first implement CRM or go straight all the way digital immediately? I, I, I would advise that um, when you say work for, you know, obviously, you know, the role with the organization matters here. Um, but strategically, you got to get your, your strategy down first. Um, uh, when you say that there's no CRM system there, um, I like I get that, right? They're, they're, you know, what functions sort of are driving that? Is there a reason sort of behind that is my first trigger uh, point. Um, but more broadly, uh, what the strategic goals of the organization are. It, it, it could be as simple as think about it this way. Um, uh, one organization may want a lean um, IT department. Uh, another organization may want a more development-centric organization that can um, um, manage their IT um, and um, and the likes. Um, those are two completely different directions as it relates to applications. So sure, you can go to the CRM. You can go down the CRM path and start looking for tools uh, that work. Um, but how does that line up with the strategic direction of the overall organization and what they want to do? Um, if the organization is looking for those lean um, uh, uh, staffs on the IT side, uh, then obviously the cloud you know, direction is going to make a lot of sense where they don't have to do a lot of that management. That's going to cut off a bunch of CRM systems right there. That's going to cut off a bunch of ERP systems right there, right? Versus, well, we, we want to be a little more hands-on um, because we have skill here and maybe they have skill in one in one uh, language versus the other. You know, maybe they have a bunch of .NET guys. You know, maybe they don't. Um, you know, maybe, you know, so all of that matters when you're really getting to what technology should I choose. So to be honest with you, when, you're, when you need to make a technology choice, it may sound counterintuitive, but when you need to make a, a technology choice, you need to go to the business to go figure out what are we trying to accomplish here? What are we trying to do? Because you want to narrow the field of technology that you have to choose from. You have tens of thousands of options out there. And it's almost like you, know, you go to a, a grocery store and you have you know, all kinds of SKUs. Yes, you can buy everything in the store, um, but it, it does matter what you want to eat tonight, right? <laughs> like, do you right. want Mexican food or do you want Italian food? Like now you sort of narrowed the window to foods that make sense for you. And so really going to the business and, 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 and understanding what are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to go? Where, where are we trying to go with our technology needs here over a short window starts to tell you the technologies that make the most sense. Because once you understand that, the CRM ch choices start to bubble up, the ERP choices start to bubble up. Maybe those choices have CRM systems that line up to your priorities. Maybe they don't. If they don't, They'll have some integration ties that can do, but, but, the, but the entire time, the focus isn't necessarily which applications you're buying. It's more so uh, what the business functions are and how that relates uh, or how that solves uh, the, um, uh, or, or how your technology choices solve those business functions. Yeah, yeah, makes total sense. And I think, you know, one, one thing there too is you, you have to find the right balance between having an overall vision and plan and strategy and then 
assuming that and I'm not sure I'm, I might be reading too much between the lines of the question Lawrence had, which is, you know, if you want to get immediate value faster than it might take to go through a whole full blown digital transformation, you can have that broad big picture strategy and roadmap and then go implement quickly pieces of that. But as long as you're doing so in the context of what your overall strategy is, otherwise you end up just implementing something and you're sort of aimlessly going off in a random direction and someday it may be in a year or 10 years, but someday, probably sooner than later, you're going to find that you've got this hodgepodge of technology that no one's really thought through and no, no one's really planned for. So if you can have an overarching strategy, but then go implement quickly, that's usually you know the best path to do that. Right. Exactly. And then it, and, and, and the net result of kind of having those hodgepodge of systems is you're overspending. Just yeah. at the end of the day, you end up overspending on technology and uh, not just technology, personnel, everything else. And so there, there are ramifications to sort of having this sort of unstrategic, if you will, that's not a word, but, you know, by, by just sort of aimlessly going about um, buying random technology to solve gaps in your company, um, there's, there's, there's a price for that. And um, uh, that's what I think you should avoid. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We're here with Khalid Morris talking about digital transformation as well as consulting within digital transformation. Now, how about this? Here's a here's a super technical question. And if you don't just to give, give you a, an eject button on this question, yeah. really good answer yeah. for it. I'll try it's, to answer. But it's perfectly fine. <laughs> can, you, can you enlighten us about blockchain integration during digital transform transformation? What is it, and is it a good idea? Um, well, so it, I, 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 I will topic, but let's, let's try to see if we can answer it. Here. I, I would say um, that goes back to your strategy. I mean, when you think about blockchains, they're really just handshakes. Um, and that's really what integration is. So, you know, I think the blockchain of it all is sort of a separate deal to digital transformation of it all. Because when you think of digital transformation, it's an execution of whatever your strategy is. And so now we got to kind of get into the strategy of, are we doing this for privacy? Are we sort of, you know, are we, are we trying to be off the grid here as it relates to, to sort of, um, you know, implementing something like a blockchain? Why are we implementing uh, something like a blockchain? Blockchain is, 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 is just a platform. And, you know, there's, there's sort of many different platforms out there. You can go a million different ways with, um, with, with, with what that is. I used to do a lot of custom development too. So when you work with a blank canvas 
and and you sort of start with, okay, what do we want to do? You're not starting with, oh, to because what do we want to do is the transformation, but you're not starting with, I want to do blockchain. <laughs> That's not how you start the conversation. You start the conversation with what your needs are. You start the conversation with what you're trying to accomplish. You're drawing circles to say this, you know, we would like to, to do this, you know, here, and these are the ways that we would like to do it. Uh, once you kind of get that down, you get that clarity down, then things like the technology application to fit that particular model start to make sense. Then it becomes a discussion of, you know, blockchain will be great here. It will be great here because this is what we're doing. Right? And, and blockchain is a, maybe a, a great economical way of sort of doing that. Right um, uh, through you know channels that are out there to do it. Now, maybe it's not. Maybe there is a, a different way or, or a more efficient way. So um, you know, there's so many different integration paths. Now, I've done a ton of integration. Um, there's so many different integration tools nowadays, like a gazillion. Um, yeah. That it, it it when you're really trying to tie applications together, when you're trying to tie data together. It, for me, it, it, it just becomes more about not talking about tech. I think to be redundant with this conversation, but again, I, I get that it sounds counterintuitive, but to to really solve a technology question, and maybe maybe I have this perspective because I wasn't always technical. And so it, it really helped me to sort of break this down and, 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 and first understand that things don't start at the technical level. Things get to the technical level once you get into your use cases and the application of what you're trying to do functional. That's where it starts. That's where transformation starts. The belly of transformation is in outlining what you're trying to do functionally. Then you kind of can get into, okay, well, you know, I have some complicated ones here, desires here, and these complicated desires require a platform like blockchain or a platform like something else it might be net it might be you know who did who knows so there's so many different ways you accomplish it the beauty for in technology today is that it's it's so developed so diverse and there's there's so many different ways to sort of do things that you can probably do whatever you want it's it's more so just about that and i know from a technical end that's what those technical um, custom development or even regular package development everyone wants to know what do you want me to do <laughs> you know they don't they're not they're not asking you for advice on whether or not to implement blockchain versus something else they just want the suite of requirements like what do you want me to do help me see what i need to do here and then they'll go go ahead and, and, and do it and and so you got to think about digital transformation from a business perspective first not a technology perspective yeah yeah and i know where and I totally agree with that, you know, if you let your business drive whether or not you need blockchain or any other technology for that matter, that's, that's typically the way to do it. In, in blockchain, you know, at least within large scale enterprise digital transformations, is the use cases are fairly limited right now. I think someday, you know, maybe in five or 10 years, blockchain will probably be a lot more mainstream, if you will. But for now, we're seeing sort of early signs of adoption in really highly complex supply chains like uh, food and beverage or pharmaceutical, for example, right. Right. Um, where you, that traceability is so that important. Is, yeah. Those handshakes throughout the entire supply chain, you've got to track all that and blockchain is a great technology to do that. Um, but I think a lot of us, uh, you know, uh, consultants and software vendors included are trying to figure out how does blockchain 
how could it fit into these enterprises and what are some of the uh, use cases. But I think the key is, you, you know, the key question you have to ask yourself when it comes to blockchain or any emerging technology is, A, does it fit with your strategy and is it the right technology? And B, is it mature and proven enough for your business? If you're a super risk adverse yeah. follower, which isn't a bad thing, but if you're a risk adverse organization, you probably don't want to be one of the first to try the whole blockchain thing out. But if you're a highly aggressive risk, uh, you know, risk, you're open to risk and uh, you're a tech company or whatever, then then blockchain could be a good option. It's just a matter of aligning with what your strategy and culture is. Yeah, it will. To me, it will go back to customized sort of traceability and whether or not you're comfortable managing that. And there are other ways to manage traceability. You know? right. So so once you get into the belly of why you what you need, you know, you'll look at a bunch of options. Blockchain will just be one. It'll just be one of the options and it might not make sense once you kind of get into that, um, because at the end of the day, if all you really want is that, then, you know, why would you go the more complicated route or why would you go the route that you can't have the resources to sort of manage it? Or, you know, why wouldn't you go with the route that is easiest? Maybe you, you, you know, you also have other requirements in addition to traceability um, uh, or, or, you know, you, you may have requirements that center around, we just talked about human resources and we talked a little bit about, um, you know, one, you know, wanting a lean organization versus a more development centric organization, all of that stuff matters. It's, it's not one thing. And those are business questions. Those are not technical questions. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of organizations make is they think these things are IT projects. And they're not. I mean, digital transformation is not a IT project. It is a business initiative. Uh, it's a business exercise, and you got to think about it from that route. And and once you start thinking about it that route, the answers to the questions that you present uh, start to become easy. Yeah, yeah, very very well said. Now I'm going to ask one last question because you and I both have hard stops at a quarter past the hour here. But so I want to ask, actually, it's two questions. I'm going to try to wrap it into one. There are two audience questions here. And I want to thank the audience, first of all, because if you've ever been on my live streams podcast, I cannot for the life of me get through one of those sessions without somehow bringing up change management or people. <laughs> but, but I didn't have to do it this time because the audience did it for me. So now not just me that's thinking all crazy about this people and change management stuff. Um, so I'm going to show you two questions, Khalid, maybe we can sort of summarize this as, as sort of the best we can at, at a high level. But the first, call it part A of the question is, how do you address the people part of transformation? Most of the companies are so focused on the tech and solving a problem and not the culture shift that is truly necessary. And to hold that thought while you're thinking about that, Khalid, because there's a follow up here um, that sort of fits in with that. And this is from uh, Christian over on YouTube who has the question, any recommendations on how to get aligned with all the stakeholders running a global implementation with global teams in the US and China? So I guess that's a, those are two sort of different questions, but it, it all comes back to the question of how do you manage change on a global scale across an entire enterprise, especially if you're in multiple countries, multiple locations, um, how do you manage the stakeholders? I mean, what are, maybe rather than us trying to dissect the world of change management in two minutes or whatever we've got left, um, maybe just sort of summarize, you know, how do you get started on that change management journey or what are some of the things to think about? Well, well, first we're starters from the beginning. I mean, that's you, 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 you know, you get started on that right now. And I think in both instances, the key there is going to be communication. So a communication plan um, uh, in both instances are, are critical. 
um, you know, whether you're talking about managing kind of that digital transformation um, uh, or you're sort of talking about managing stakeholders, um, you know, what is the communication window for this um, across people? Because uh, that's really what people are, are looking for on these complicated projects. You, you know, we used to call them suits, you know, now no, you know, everything's virtual, but, you know, when the suits will come through the door, these consultants that are implementing, I was a suit, right? You kind of walk through the door, everyone's looking at you sideways. Why are you here? What are you doing? And if no one's communicating with them, they got all kind of weirdness running through their head. You know, they want to do this. Oh, this was Gary. Gary did this to me. Gary, Gary is sort of pushing his agenda. And and yeah, all this, all this craziness is sort of starts to bubble up in the organization. And that's where all these misunderstandings start to come from. So they need a communication path. How are we going to talk to them? How are they going to, going to be able to share information with us? How are we going to share information with them? What is the cadence going to be like for engaging our, you know, uh, end users that, you know, ultimately we'll need, but we just don't need right now at this stage of the project. Likewise, stakeholders that we need right now, what is that cadence going to look like? You know, how frequently are we going to meet? Um, you know, where are we going to meet? What are we going to sort of talk about? What is their visibility going to be into this particular project uh, risk? Um, uh, you know, as, as well as uh, the success. And so to me, in both cases, that comes down to having an appropriate um, uh, communication plan. Everyone thinks about OCM from the perspective of training, and they should. It's a critical part of it. Um, but there's, there's other factors to uh, change management. And um, I think one of the critical parts to change management aside from the branding elements and, and you know just making sure there's there's positive energy around your project and, and you identifying uh, resistance and um, and problematic areas um, but that that communication plan for me is a a critical part of uh, having a successful project across the board and having a successful alignment with your people yeah all right. Good stuff. Thanks, Khalid. Thanks for being here. And thanks for that great discussion. We covered a lot of ground there, a lot of very diverse topics that we would have covered anyway, but as well as uh, some of the the uh, diverse questions that we got from the audience. So I really appreciate the audience participation and questions there. Uh, we're going to unpack some of this a little bit more in more detail, some of the salient points or some of the highlights of that discussion. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So 
Hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 62. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find new episodes every Wednesday on all the audio podcast platforms. Be sure to check us out there. And be sure to follow us on social media too, whatever social media platform you're on. Chances are we're on there too, sharing stuff daily. So be sure to follow us, subscribe to us, share the content, and uh, hopefully you find that that stuff helpful as you navigate your, your transformation journeys. So Kyler, we just had Khalid on the show talking about a lot of different stuff. He was in the hot seat. He did, he did a pretty good job, I'd say, wouldn't you? I mean, he, he didn't... Oh, yeah. He didn't... Uh, Buckle under the pressure. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely not. It's so it's funny that you mentioned kind of that little um, behind the curtain tip because I did the same thing to him at Digital Stratosphere, and he's probably like, "Oh my goodness, I'm never doing." <laughs> you know, usually um, we're pretty uh, as as a group of project managers, we're pretty uh, planned out and buttoned up. But he's come in a few times, and it's really good at just overall making things really digestible, understandable. He's very relatable. Um, so it's always excellent to hear from him, um, on the show. He's done a few of our other digital stratosphere, um, podcasts as well. And he did an excellent one on data management. So definitely recommend you, you check that out because he really kind of broke down a very complex master data management plan for us. So, um, but I thought it was really interesting because what I've started doing a lot of live streams on our LinkedIn channel or our, our third stage YouTube channel, interviewing a lot of our consultants and never have I ever once when I asked someone how they got into consulting, they'd be like, well, you know, I, I went to school to be a consultant. A lot of times they're like, I, I don't know, you know, <laughs> kind of, just kind of, yeah, <laughs> just fell into it. Um, and you know, same with Khalid and talking about just his overall background in finance and then moving from kind of, a focus on real estate to a lot of more consulting pieces. And it just showcases that a consulting a lot of times I think has a misperception of being a super technical, like you need to be able to code, you need to be an engineer, you know, have those really, really hard technical skills when really it's more about business strategy and helping businesses understand what they want to accomplish and kind of discover those objectives. I think that's, you know, interesting. Yeah, I agree. And, he, you know, he's a good example of that. I mean, he did some fairly high level strategy type stuff back earlier in his career, 10, 10 or so years ago, back when he was working with me at my previous company. But after that, he sort of went down a really technical path and he got deep into data migration and integration, architecture, configuration and development. I mean, he, he's probably he's one of the probably the two or three people on our team that are the most technical, you know, in terms of hands on understanding of, of uh, technology. And for me too, you know, as I get older, I, I uh, and more experienced in the industry, I tend to want to learn more about the technology because it just is, is very fascinating, especially if you have that foundational understanding of strategy and uh, transformation in general and the people and process sides of things, then it sort of gives you more of a meaning, you know, when you get into the, the deeper technical side of things. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I think the thesis of that statement is, you know, a lot of that can be learned. You don't have to know that immediately, you know, when going into a consulting career, um, you know, you can continue to always be that sponge and pick up those skills. Um, and Khalid is a great example of someone who has a great technical background, but also is able to sit in a room and be relatable or be approachable to a lot of our client community, which is, you know, really the most important thing. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. He is uh, very relatable. And you were mentioning just to come back, circle back to your point about um, you know him being on the hot seat and how he's able to roll the punches. I think that's one of the the beauties of working with a, a former competitive athlete. <laughs> you know, they they don't choke under the pressure. Although you do wonder, you know, maybe they need more of a game plan and more preparation than than most because they're used to that. But uh, yeah, that's, that was he is uh, he has an interesting background and he's easy to talk to for sure. Yeah, um, he uh, played basketball at, at DU, um, where you had you got your masters. So um, he's a definitely a great athlete. I think he was actually he went to DU for his masters, but he played. Oh gosh, I should know this. I want to say it was LSU, somewhere in oh, the south. Oh, did he? Okay. Very yeah, cool. it was a different school. I think it was a Division One school in the U.S., so he he didn't play my alma mater, which is probably good because DU does not have a good basketball team <laughs> where, where yeah, I went to school. Right? <laughs> They're not known for their sports other yeah. than hockey and lacrosse. Yeah. Sorry. Well, sorry to tell you short, Cleed, um, but we, yeah. we should get some, like, footage of him playing and, you know, paste it in here so we can see. Um, but he did uh, ground control uh, live live stream or uh, was on a previous episode talking a lot about coaching. So again, that that technical um, kind of unicorn of having that ability to explain something, especially to teenage kids as his, his son plays, it sounds like from that um, at last episode, but also be able to do that on the business side. It really is kind of that, I almost feel like you should call it digital transformation coach as opposed to consultant because consultant can sound kind of scary and sometimes a little bit arrogant like you know i know everything you know nothing type of thing um and i see that i think that's why we see a lot of young people not go into that career because they feel as though they're kind of canceled out by experience or we see a lot of creatives not go into that career because they think they need you know a real big technical background um yeah but I think, you know, just shifting gears a little bit to talk about, you know, your experience with him um, in kind of those those big four consulting firms. I thought it was pretty powerful when he said, um, you know, I've never thought this is definitely the right application for this client. Um, he's never thought that on one of those those projects. And um, I think that that's just so telling of you know, not being able to actually get to the root of addressing clients' real issues or the real why behind they're getting this technology in those those bigger consulting firms. So I have to ask, like, how 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 does that happen? Like, that might be the most basic question in the world, but I just don't understand, like, how how that always seems to be the answer from either our previous consultants that have worked there or our clients that have had you know, not so great experiences with those bigger firms. Yeah, I, I thought it was super interesting too. And I'd, I'd never heard that. I'd never heard anyone say that, to be honest. So it, there was a lot of firsts in that discussion, by the way. There's a lot of things he said. And even this podcast so far, there's been, I always learn a lot, but there's been some some pr- pretty big gotchas that have sort of smacked me across the face here. Like, why didn't you think of that before? Um, but, you know, I, in my experience, I, I've always questioned, like, is this the right fit? But his was a little stronger, like this doesn't seem like the right fit. And, and so maybe his, he just had more of an intuitive sense. Um, he was also, you know, he also worked at some of these larger firms later in his career than I did. I, I kind of started off at the bigger firms, whereas he went in later on in his career. So um, that that might have something to do with it. He was probably more wise going in than I was. Um, but I think it's, you know, the re- as far as how it happens, I think it's, um, I just think, you know, to, to over, at the risk of oversimplifying, uh, the bigger the organization, the, the worse they are at making decisions sometimes because you just, it's so hard to get alignment. It's so hard to get a clear vision of what it is you're trying to accomplish with this project. And so what ends up happening is, 
in the absence of alignment, in the absence of clarity of vision, what ends up happening is you get the big software vendors or the big system integrators that come in with that silver bullet answer that everyone's craving. They're craving clarity, they're craving alignment. And if I'm a good enough salesperson and I put in front of you the silver bullet that sounds too good to be true, then the organization can tends to rally around that. So that that's one dynamic, I think, is it's the absence of clarity, the absence of vision. So big company comes in and takes advantage of that. Um, the other part of it, too, is that um, there's a mentality with these bigger firms that are more likely to use like an Accenture or a Deloitte, which is where he came from. I came from PwC. Uh, it's also true for KPMG and um, IBM and other large system integrators. But there's a there's a perception with these large companies that if they use one of those large consulting firms, then that's the safe answer. No one ever gets fired for hiring Accenture. No one ever gets fired for hiring IBM. Uh, the only problem is I can name a lot of a lot of organizations or people that have been fired for hiring those organizations. But the perception is that it's a safe answer, so I'm going to defer to them. So you defer to these big providers who have, guess what, partnerships with SAP or Oracle or whoever it is, and they come in and force that technology down your throat, but it sounds really good. You don't know it's getting forced down your throat until you get into the implementation. Um, and that's where Khalid would come in and see that it's getting forced down their throats. Um, so I think that's the that's sort of the dynamic that, I, I think that's the why, from the best that I can tell, the why that dynamic happens in these larger, especially in larger organizations. Yeah, I, I think that um, it's kind of ironic, the why does that happen when we're, we're lacking the overall why are you implementing this technology which seems like such a basic question but a lot of times can be a, a huge um stopgap for organizations like i don't know why um, especially when he referenced the communication plan and when you were talking about organizational change management i love how he referenced like the suits you know you always know when in a corporation when they come in and they're you know trying to tell you how you should do your job and what's going to change and and he's right it is weird and awkward um that's why a lot of times that communication plan i think has to be internalized in order for it to be effective even if you are using a change agent or expert um on that side which is always recommended um you know it's like using a mechanic instead of fixing your car yourself but um he really kind of drove home the need for that to be authentic and real, um, for it to have an impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very true. Well, I, I mean, I thought such a great conversation. Um, and then, you know, Khalid is on a variety of our other ones. He still um, has his keynotes up for Digital Stratosphere, um, which he talked about supply chain and data ma management. So definitely recommend checking those out. You can go to stratosphere2022.com. Um, and register to see his specific keynotes that he does a, a great job in um, executing. But an awesome conversation, really eye-opening when it comes to you know the overall bias in the industry, but also the opportunity in consulting. So. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, good to have him on the show. And I'm sure we'll have him back. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll try that that consultant hot seat. Uh, approach again. And by the way, I'd be curious whatever platform you're watching on, I'd love to hear your comments. Did you like that platform or that uh, format? Should we do it again? Should we scrap it and try something different? Love to hear your feedback on that. Cause I was, like I said, it was sort of an accident that we tried it. But when we did the live stream, we had a extremely high level of engagement and extremely high viewership, much higher than normal. Um, so it makes me think maybe we're onto something, but I don't want to assume. So I'd love to hear your feedback as well. Uh, now that you've seen the, the uh, discussion with, with Khalid. So 
good discussion there, and we're going to uh, take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to shift gears and talk about how to scale for growth, whether you're a small or mid-sized organization, uh, just a high-growth or growing organization. We're going to talk about some of the different ways you can scale for growth. We're going to have Amanda Patton and Christy Barber from the Third Stage Consulting Team on. They're going to present one of their uh, presentations from our Stratosphere 2022 event, the same one that you were just giving the website for that you can go watch on demand at stratosphere2022.com. And uh, we're going to play you the clip uh, from Christy and Amanda talking about how to scale for growth. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 62. You can find new episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for being here today. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're glad to have uh, two repeat guests on the show. Uh, I think they've been on separately in the past, but never together. Uh, so we're going to have Amanda Patton and Christy Barber on the show. We're actually going to play you a clip from the Stratosphere 2022 session that they presented on the topic of how to scale for growth for both small and mid-sized organizations. So uh, why don't we just jump into it, and then afterwards, uh, Kyler, you and I can sort of debrief some of the, the key findings there. But uh, let's cut over to the clip with... Um, with Christy and Amanda talking about scaling for growth. So for all of you that don't know, my name is Christy Barber. I am senior manager here at um, Third Stage, and I help primarily with small businesses, um, with anything ranging from selection, implementations, process improvement, change management, all of that. And I'm Amanda Patton. Um, I am a manager here at Third Stage, and I do several different things, but it's predominantly here lately been in the mid-market around uh, project management. So uh, my background is has been on the vendor side and then in the analyst relations side. So um, I come to it with several different vantage points, I guess you could say. I'll kick it off for us. So we're talking about scaling for growth and we come uh, with different perspectives. I know we've both worked in, in each, but uh, Christy from the small to medium business and, and I have more of a, a mid-market um, experience and talking about best practices and kind of some of the focus areas that we want to get into around that. Um, so as Eric was talking about earlier, best practices is kind of a, a you know, um, a worn out <laughs> phrase sometimes, and you have to, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, so we're, we're looking at it from a data perspective, perspective and also anecdotal evidence, right? What are we seeing every single day in the real world on our projects with our clients in these different areas um, and different um, areas of the market? Focus areas, we're just going to talk about the three main things, right? People, process, and technology. And we'll kind of go back and forth in a convers conversational nature, uh, speaking to small business and um, 
mid-market as well. And then, of course, we're going to invite you guys to all um, put your questions and comments in the chat so we can make it as interactive as possible. That sound good? So we'll dive into people first. And I, I think something for everybody that's watching now, if you want to kind of start thinking about and putting it in the chat of what are some of the issues you may have coming up around the people issues of your company? Is it, are there areas that are really siloed in your company and you're trying to move away from that? Do you have issues where there's changes needing to be coming and going on and there's a lot of adverse to change because we'd like to be able to talk about some real life scenarios with you as well to help give you um, some help in your business as well and what we'll do in this is i'll start out from a small business perspective of addressing a handful of items on here and then amanda's going to piggyback on that and talk about hey when you start moving from the small business to the medium size mid-market the this is kind of what the issues start to look like from there so kind of gauging where you are. And we look at small business from one to 50 million, about 50 million and to about 250 um, as mid market. It can even go higher than there. Um, Amanda and I were discussing this earlier. Sometimes it goes up to the 1 billion mark as being a mid market. So um, however y'all fall in there, that's what we'll be addressing. But I think that the biggest part is when we look at a company, looking at the culture, uh, how was it originally built? Where is it looking now? How has it maybe deviated from the, how the founder put together the culture? And that a lot of times comes with one of the main issues is tribal knowledge. People that have started out at the organization from day one, they may be here 30, 40 years. And when you start having changes in a company, tribal knowledge becomes very, very important because people know that it's a job guarantee. They don't want to always give it away because there is fear that if they give that knowledge away, that their job goes away. And that's not correct. The more tribal knowledge you can share, the more you can help make a company more efficient, more effective in all of those ways. And I've seen this a lot of somebody owns an Excel spreadsheet and they're the only ones that know how it works. And pretty soon they're, they're out one day sick or they're thinking about retiring and nobody else knows how to get this to work. And there's this tribal knowledge that's been stored for such a long period of time that then it causes adverse effects to your business. Um, so, man, I'll let you chime in on this on the, the mid-market side of what you've seen as well of what it can cause. Yes. So like you were talking about too, just in terms of defining mid-market from my perspective, I mean, it's a very subjective definition and analysts define it all kinds of ways, anywhere from 1 million to, i sorry, 10 million to a billion, which is just a crazy range. And so I tend to define it more 50 million to 250 million, like Christy was saying, um, or you can look at it from the perspective of how many employees you have. So if it's 500 to 1500 employees, maybe um, we're going to consider it mid-market, but again, open to interpretation. And um, like Christy was saying, those things are you know, culture obviously is very important, but as you grow and as you add new people and new personalities, new experiences, people are coming with their own ideas and, and methodologies, the culture is going to change and shift, right? Um, and then the tribal knowledge, I would love to say that that isn't as uh, prevalent in mid-market, but it actually is, which is pretty surprising to me. And not for everybody, of course, I'm not going to paint with a broad brush, but um 
recently, literally on Monday, went live um, with a mid-market client. And a couple of weeks as we're going through all the cutover um, activities and everything that goes on behind scenes with all of that, um, people were getting sick, you know, and it was scary because there were massive amounts of work and a lot of tasks that needed to be done um, on certain days to make to make the milestones that we needed to go live successfully. And in some cases, that one person um, who maybe was sick beyond being able to dial in from home um, knew everything and, and maybe even for years or decades. And so it's not like someone else could step in and just say, oh yeah, yeah, we can, I can get access to this. I can figure it out. Some of it was literally hidden in, you know, spreadsheets and all kinds of other algorithms that only that people know. So that's a huge um, risk but it also lends itself to the silos that people refer to, right? Like um, if we're not sharing information across departments and, and teams, um, it's it's harder to work um, synergistically across all those different teams. Um, and in cutover and go live on new uh, technology, that's that's more important than ever. So definitely. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the resistance to change and people getting kind of territorial over, um, well, my, our team does this and I have access to this information and I don't want to share it with other people because X, Y, Z. Um, I've been surprised at how much we actually do see that in, in really, really large companies as well. Yeah, and I'm sure you've seen it too, is a lot of times when we're prepping for a go live, how much change even comes in a short amount of time prior to that go live, the one or two weeks before it, you'll see people that have been on board the whole time and all of a sudden, it's you're told that this new change is going to happen and people start to backslide just a little bit of like, hey, this is hard. I don't know. I don't know if this is the best route to, to go. Are we making the right decision? And I don't know if anybody in the audience, if you've gone through an ERP implementation recently, if you've seen things like that of where people have been on board and then all of a sudden there is that fear that sets in of, what is my job going to look like going forward exactly? How is this change going to be helpful? And I, I know I've, I've had this on a couple projects last year, even of um, probably halfway through an implementation, all of a sudden, a lot of people that were on board, the water got tainted. One person kind of stirred the pot and then everybody kind of second guesses, like, are we doing the right thing? Is this how it's made jeopardize my business? Because I own this spreadsheet over here. I own this process over here and I know it well and it works well. And why do we need to change that? And I'm sure you guys have heard this on other, even our podcasts and other speaking engagements that we've done around the organizational change that comes with that and how we have to mitigate those risks along the way um, just, just to make sure that projects don't go sideways. And Amanda and I have had a lot of experience of this with various projects of just watching that and making sure that pro the projects stay on task, people are happy, and the project becomes successful by the end of it. And that's where the whole value comes in of having a team environment where you have good leaders and everybody's falling into play on that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I know you've seen that a lot on your projects as yeah. well. Yeah. And in a small business, I would think um, it, well, early on, right. Um, it's easier maybe because there are fewer owners of, you know, areas and data and decisions and things like that. 
But as you grow and now you've got these, uh, you know, managers and you've got team leads and, and they're spearheading uh, the change effort. And they're the ones putting a positive spin on we're going to get this new technology. It's going to be hard the next year, year and a half as we as we implement. However, it's going to, you know, improve our competitive advantage. It's going to make our lives easier in the long run. We're going to streamline a lot of stuff. We're going to get rid of all these you know manual things that we have to do. Um, they're They're kind of cheering on their teams. And if you have leaders who don't believe that or don't want the change, um, it's, it's likely that they could be kind of passing on that, um, maybe the negativity or the doubt or the fear um, to their teams. In the mid-market, you've got the leadership. And so you've got to be very careful of what the thoughts are at the leadership level, because it has a really good chance of going viral and further poisoning the well. And once that mentality gets kind of sets in, it can be really hard to reverse. So in the beginning, getting buy-in, involving people at all different levels of the organization, um, making sure that instead of being shamed or ostracized for being afraid of change, that it's more of this is going to be hard. We understand this is scary. Um, we're not trying to reduce headcount. We're not trying to make anyone irrelevant. We're trying to be more efficient as a company to try to just listen and, and validate what people are saying instead of trying to, you know, um, push away or, or get rid of people who, you know, aren't on board. It may take people longer than others. And with one client in particular I had recently, um, some of these people have been using the same hotkeys green screen for 30 years, you know, and things on the floor and, and, to expect someone to uh, change over, you know, a week's period or whatever uh, may be unrealistic. So just trying to have really good emotional intelligence from an upper management perspective on kind of how it's framed um, and then checking in with people throughout the implementation because it is hard. It's a hard thing to, to ask people to do. Um, so, yeah, I think that was it. And I think adding to that also from a small business side, when you are a lot less employees, it gets hard because you're, doing all of your daily work, plus you're doing an implementation as well. So you're working a lot more hours and not necessarily having all the help that a larger organization has to offer. And we'll see many times we'll come in and be a part of that implementation a little more closely and stand in for the smaller businesses and act as a liaison in multiple ways to help make the project successful to them and alleviate some of those fears and pain points that they have of not being able to do everything that their company requires of them on a daily basis and doing an implementation. So it's ways to help free up some of that anxiety that comes with it. But Liam, I want to look at your question and you mentioned, I've seen those experiences when we were talking about the implementations and having some of the, the risks coming with that with people not being totally on board. And you said, and being on of the key user part of the team, trying to figure out how to make this work was incredibly infuriating. And I felt such a strong sense of betrayal because we had been building this thing together. It's difficult in difficult, stressful conditions and absolutely need to make sure that people don't freak out over the change prior to the implementation of the change. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a lot of what Amanda and I have seen, and especially on the project management side of when we're in these implementations of looking at those risks and determining them, or I guess determining what those risks may be before they actually show up so we can get a plan in place. And like you said, after you guys have built something and then there starts to be people changing their minds, it does feel it's a very heavy sense of betrayal of 
hey, I thought we were all on par and we, we had the same vision and the same goal and now it's shifted. And so, yeah, I don't know what you have to add to that too, Amanda, but I, I totally resonate with you. I've, I've seen that happen. Yes, definitely. <clears throat> and there will be uh, conflicts, you know, that's a part of a, of a digital transformation or any type of big change. And um, uh, particularly in companies who run a pretty lean organization, it's a lot of pressure to put on people for a really prolonged amount of time. Um, and so it's it sounds trivial, but it's important to keep it fun. Um, and to, you know, we've had clients who make T-shirts and uh, people wear tiaras and they have MVPs of the project. And there's, you know, there are ways to make it uh, team culture around uh, that. But also, I think just acknowledging repeatedly um, that we know it's hard and we really appreciate all the effort and that type of thing. Um, because I think some corporations, depending again on the culture, um, just expect it. And there are no, you know, add a girls or, um, hey, good job, you know, because that's just not the culture. And sometimes people just need to hear, we understand you're doing more and we really do appreciate it. Um, so I've seen some companies, they'll play, play games as they all get together on a Saturday and come in and it's like the first person to break the system in our testing gets a prize. And yeah. they, they kind of make a joke out of it. Like your goal is to break the system. And that's another way to bring some fun into it as well. I want to address our last couple of points on here of when you're going through an implementation or even going into that selection process of determining, hey, I need to move off a system that I have today to something that's more robust or can provide needs for our company to scale properly. These uh, last two are really, well, last three are really important in that respect of you're going to have employees that want to be heard and be able to add value to this project. They may be not always managers. And I think that's something important to think about is your subject matter experts are the ones that are using the software on a daily basis and they need to be able to see how this system is going to properly work for them. Does it make sense for them? Is it intuitive enough for them to navigate through? Does it give them the results they want? And then looking it up from their management level, is management able to get the reports they need? Is upper management able to, and all the way up from there, is the subject matter experts need to be heard. And we encourage that a lot from the very beginning when we start our process of our workshops of bringing people in hey how does this department work walk me through it high level start to finish when an order comes in to when an item gets shipped out the door what does that look like and that helps bring that buy-in in and develop the team dynamics of what that will look like you will eventually narrow down from there and you'll always have a core team of decision makers and people that are heavily involved in the program but having, you know, the, the, like I said, the employees, subject matter experts being able to do that, that does help mitigate a lot of the risks that can show up later on in the project. Definitely. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in the process area, but it does obviously tie back to people. Everything ties back to people, which is, um, you know, you have a steering committee, which are kind of the executives. You've got the core team and the differences in the detail and the day-to-day are, are vast, right? And so if you've got people just in a conference room making decisions based on data and reports they need to see, and nobody's talking to anybody on the production floor, it's going to be a disaster. 
Um, and so to Christy's point, everyone needs to be heard. And a lot of companies think they have a current state, but if you really do process workshops and you talk to people, uh, what you think is your current state and what your current state is actually operating as are typically pretty different. Um, and it also is very siloed as have been mentioned in the chat, right? That's um, so just getting on the same page with, oh, I didn't realize you guys were doing it that way. Maybe that's why it's causing issues over here. And just having an understanding of what's true instead of what you want to be true um, is really important going in. And that can be an intimidating process. And depending on the culture and the, the dynamics within, um, when you have people in those process workshops, some people may not want to speak up in front of others, right? And so really, as you know, we as the consultants really try to understand the dynamics and make sure that people are comfortable to share um, the truth. And if not in a group setting on a, on a call or a process workshop, then at least off to the side so that we have all the information because we can only build our solutions and recommendations based on um, what we are told, you know, what we know. So are we ready to go to yeah, let's go into processes? All right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Christy and Barbara talking about how to scale for growth for small and mid-sized organizations. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 62. We're here with Christy and Amanda talking about how to scale for growth for small and mid-sized organizations. All right. Processes. This, this is my favorite part of, <laughs> of any selection and being able to clearly understand how your business works. Walking through, like I mentioned previously, the workshops that we do of each department, start to finish, high level. What does it look like? Where are the decision points? Where are the pain points? Where are opportunities? Where uh of people, piece of technology, or a pro, you know, a change to the process could change it. And that's a lot of what we do in those moments. And then you make your process of this living document that comes with you when you implement the new software, it becomes the structure of that workflow and continually grows with you. And you, you make minor changes to it as a whole. Um, what I have seen, and I spoke about it on a podcast a couple weeks ago, is a lot of smaller businesses, they don't have defined processes yet. They may have some, but not uh, not really clear, or they have people doing multiple jobs because it doesn't make sense to hire additional people yet. So you may have somebody doing shipping, receiving, and production, or you uh, same on the accounting side, they may be doing accounting, HR, and maybe a component of sales. 
And what does that look like when we need to start building out a foundation of each of these departments to properly scale the company for bigger growth and for that to come? And that's something we, we help walk you through as well. And one thing I see, and Amanda, probably you'll see this as well, is when we do come in, we're running these workshops, processes aren't defined necessarily they may look that way but as we're drawing them out and we're really going through them a lot of times we'll start tinkering with them and changing them up with the client to say hey you know what yeah we we don't like this part of it we need to shift this because it's causing these extra five ten steps that aren't necessary and then we start building out the processes from there and then using that as a framework to pass on to the vendor if if um, when they come in for demos that, that this is what they're to follow. You also can use it to start building out each department and giving your employees a framework to start with and that they continually can add on to that. Um, and all the other thing that I see is this, this third point here is everybody needs to be involved in a decision when it comes to a process. You don't want one department deciding, hey, this process needs to change because they only touch two parts of it compared to another um, department that that's their entire process. So if there's ways to bring everybody together to work on that framework, that helps co avoid costs and avoid risks and also avoiding ways that people kind of start butting heads of, hey, you don't own this process, this is mine. And I understand we need to make this better. Let's all come sit around the table and collaborate and make this, you know, the best that we can make it be in a way. I would say uh, to elaborate on that, the um, a lot of times what was written as process early on worked at the time um, and it's not working now because of complexity or volume or you're adding. Right. And so whatever uh, processes and technology were in place for how, however long um, they've reached their limit. Right. And so we help people figure out where is the threshold? When do you need to move off of QuickBooks onto this? And when do you need to hire for this position and those types of things? But in the process, a lot of times you'll find, well, this is how the process was written. But now we've had to create these workarounds because we have limitations with our technology. And so we need to, you know, adjust the process um, and, and find a technology that's going to accommodate that. And Eric says it all the time. You don't want the technology to drive the business. It should be the other way around. Um, but right sizing processes now, as opposed to how they were written and how they were two years ago, let's say, um, as the business has evolved, the processes are probably going to evolve as well. So like Christy's saying, there's always um, business process uh, management optimization throughout this um, which can be hard, right? Because it's changed in every single department and every action touches every other, right? It's all interconnected. So again, making sure that um, people are aware of any changes that they make to their process could uh, impact others and probably will. So this I want to address Tammy's question first yeah. and then we'll go to Liam's. Okay. Uh, so Tammy, if starting a new uh, team and you got a department that currently doesn't have any processes, what I suggest is going off of best practices for that department. There are sheets out there that you can uh, copy from and use it as a framework. We're happy to help in any way that we can as well and use that as a foundation to start with. So good example would be 
um, let's go with um, the sales department. I have an order. I have somebody that wants to make an order. It could be by phone call. It could be email. It could be via EDI or um, another type of way that people may reach out. They may even come in. So that would be your your entry points of where they would go. And then from there, you would say, hey, now I have to do a credit check. Um, maybe I have to give them this extra paperwork before they can come on and, and be the customer or be the order that needs to be placed and how it flows from there until the order does get placed. Where does it go next? Does it go to production? Does it go to accounting to get invoiced? And there's great um, great foundations out there that you can start with. And that's what I would suggest to, to start building from there. And then it'll at least give you a starting point. And then people based off their experiences of what they do in that department and what you know, and from your expertise, you start filling in the gaps of what that process should look like. Where, where are the pain points? Where is those opportunities you're seeing of, we can really build this area out or, hey, we need to control this a little bit tighter. Maybe there's some extra decision points that need to be coming in. Good example is like on a purchase order. If a purchase order is over X dollars, maybe there's a decision point that somebody has to sign off on that before um, it can actually be placed. Yeah, and it's it's literally the way we do it is coming in and, and having all the stakeholders at the table and one person's taking notes on opportunities, pain points, all of that. Um, and then the other person is building out a process map um, in Visio or whatever um, your team uses, like Christy's saying. So, um, you know, to where you've got a visual output, but also, okay, here's what's happened. And then here's a decision point, And then it goes here. If this, then that, right? And to where, because without that visual output and that clear understanding for everyone to agree on, it's really hard to then turn around and write technical processes, um, you know, and a lot of people try to sit around and talk about it in a conversational way. And that's, that's, that's hard to um, it's not concrete enough almost. And it's really nice to have those process maps to refer back to for people uh, and then to be able to write your processes based on that. Uh, so that, you know, here's where the decisions are made, who's supposed to make the decision. Um, and then of course, when you're onboarding new people, it's, it's nice for them to also know what the process is ahead of time. Just go to Liam's. Oh. Uh, I like yours already about video games. <laughs> so how, yeah. how should businesses respond to the emerging work from home culture when doing transformations and implementations? Team building using video games like Call of Duty instead of the in-person team building. Um, so I, I've, I've seen that I've been on a lot of implementations. I mean, over the last two years is the, the world has kind of shifted of either fully work from home or a hybrid of in office and work from home and changing up how how things flow. So a good way with these implementations is usually we'd always be on site. We're walking through warehouses, we're looking at things, we're training people one to one and in group settings and getting them up to speed on the software. And that's shifted now of everything is from a Zoom call or a Teams call and we're having to do testing in a group format on a call like like this and you would have maybe 15 people on the call and we're walking through hey this is this is how you do it what are the questions now go do it on your own and i think there's there's a resilience that people have in the ability to adapt easily however i still think that when you can be hands-on and more in person it it's 
not that it's more successful, but I think it makes it easier to transition because it, it seems more real and tangible when you have the experts in the room with you. Um, but I, I like your idea of uh, using a video game to uh, test. And I think that's kind of what we, we did on another project I had. And we write up testing scripts to say, hey, a day in the life, what are you going to do? And, you know, do do this. And what what is the result that the software gives you? Is that the result we want? Yes or no? Okay, moving on. And that's kind of some of the games we've played with clients. So. I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but um, feel free to put more in the comments and then I'll let Amanda respond to it as well. Yeah, I think if it's really just, if it's making fun for the process itself, like the, you know, the business process review sessions, which can get a little dry sometimes, or the UAT or whatever, um, th those are, you know, those those can be a little bit harder to make fun, but if it's pure, um, uh, team building. I've been on a lot of them where there are video, you know, not video. What am I saying? Trivia. Um, and there's all kinds of, I think there's like 12 or 13 uh, platforms that just do that, right? Where everybody gets on, there's trivia games, and maybe you get a $25 gift card for whoever wins or whatever. Um, but, or Call of Duty, that, that could work for some as well, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, it's, it sounds kind of, cheesy initially but they end up being really fun because each person has like a screen name and the screen names are usually pretty funny as well and then it's just trivia about random things right um so it is a good way to kind of laugh and and play a game and um take a little break from from work stuff so that is a that is a very good question and a good point because we do need that we still need that connection and that time to just have fun as a team even when we're remote Maybe these last two points of implementing technology tools doesn't fix bad processes. It only automates that. Um, I, I've, I've seen this a handful of times where when we're in a selection, there's this sometimes unrealistic thought that, oh, well, I have an ERP. It'll do everything. I just hit a button and it goes. And that's not necessarily how it works. You, you have to have that, that process workflow set up. And then there's, points where automation will come in, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't, it doesn't fix if there's a bad process of something, uh, a good idea is, or an example I have as a client, a bad process is they would print out every single invoice and then they would scan it back into the system and save it in a OneDrive. That's a bad process. Putting in a new system is not going to fix that it's a process change of, hey, we need to just do file save as, and that eliminates printing paper and like scanning things back in. Um, yeah, and then deep dive into cash flow before expensive decisions, making those decisions. That's something that comes up a lot in the small business side of determining when is the right decision. And we'll talk about this more on the next slide too, when you need to make a move from where you are today to where you are in the future to be able to scale properly, but also not go into debt when you're trying to make that move. Because ERP system, I mean, it's, it's expensive. It's an investment um, that you're putting into your company because you believe in it, that it can get to the next level. And this is the tool that's going to help you be able to do that. So a lot of times in our mm -hmm. processes or in our whole implementation selection, 
process of what we do with you is we walk through a cash flow component of it saying, hey, this is about on average what the vendor gave us, what they think the cost will be. Here's what you're paying today. Here's how much you would save if you retired your software today. But there's also going to be a crossover because when you implement the new software, you're still going to be on the old software and you may have to pay for some of those subscriptions for a minute. And just that cost right there will be one of the most expensive costs because you'll be paying for two softwares at the same time. And just having a good idea of when it, when it makes sense um, and a realistic view of how much it's going to cost and start putting money inside today for that. Right. That's, and that's a lot of what we do. I uh, like Christy, like you're saying is uh, really take a systems inventory. What are all the pieces of technology you're using right now? Uh, what are they being used for? Which departments are they uh, are using them? Um, how do they talk to each other, if at all? And getting a really good, and also the cost associated with each one, right? So you're spending, okay, let's add all these up. You're spending this much per year. If you put in an ERP, um, do some of these need to be kept as edge systems to be able to feed in and out? Or is the ERP going to be able to cover that? And you can kind of look, because yes, you're spending a lot of money. You may be offloading some of the expense by getting rid of some of the other software, but some of them, some of it may need to be kept right and so really and then going back to the comment about there's a threshold sometimes um there's usually a pretty good threshold in terms of whether it's volume complexity of orders number of customers usually it's revenue that drives when you reach this much this is when you need to start looking at that right you've now got the revenue to support a decision um to go make the spend and and also another indicator is that you may be stuck where you are if you don't make that upgrade right um just because you can't, the technology you have now cannot support uh, the volume or the complexity. Um, and then obviously looking at cash flow and making sure that, that it's a justifiable spend and automating that process. I can't tell you how many times you see, and it's just human nature, I guess. Um, you think you want to change and then you start getting into the change and you realize, ooh, maybe I kind of like how it was before. Um, even though it was more work and stressful. I know I knew what it was and I knew what to expect. So there's that tendency to kind of start moving toward the change and then kind of uh, regressing a little bit. And a lot of companies, uh, really big successful companies that you think would never ever do this, spend millions and millions of dollars and years um, to basically do things the way they've been doing them just on a new system, right? Uh, they didn't they didn't take the opportunity to change the process or to actually utilize the functionality that's available in the ERP that they're implementing. Um, so that is something. And we come in a lot of times because we are agnostic and we're you know, we have no we're not uh, tied to um, telling the customer or the vendor what they want to hear. We're going to try to just tell the truth right about um, what's going on. And sometimes processes do need to be changed. Um, You'll hear in a lot of the third stage uh, materials that you shouldn't change anything that's core to your business um, or that makes you special um, or that gives you your competitive advantage. But there are some issues uh, and some processes that will need to be adjusted and that may, they may not go over well sometimes, even at high levels in the organization. So that is a fun uh, change management part of transformation for sure. And it has to start before the project even begins and it goes all the way through the end and, and well past go live in a lot of cases too. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Christy and Barber talking about how to scale for growth for small and mid-sized organizations. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 62. We're here with Christy and Amanda talking about how to scale for growth for small and mid-sized organizations. So last part of this, the technology is looking at overall system evaluations of when we start to do an ERP selection, how does that differ slightly when we're looking at a small business versus a larger business? The more components that that will touch it, is it a best of breed software that has to come in because the larger company has more needs than the small company has and what what that looks like and from the experience that I've had working with the small businesses, I think sometimes it can mirror a larger company and the amount of external pieces of software that need to touch it. Um, it may be like a good example is you're in e-commerce and you sell things on Shopify and Shopify needs to talk to your ERP system. And then you have another software that comes in because you also sell on a on Amazon and Amazon needs to come in and talk to your software. You may take orders via EDI that needs to come. And so just like a larger company going through what we previously talked about of what are all the softwares you use today? And then looking at when we do our workshops, what is your process look like today in, in each of those departments? And that helps us understand, Hey, you know what, this, this software, we're going to have to keep it to and make it work with the ERP and we'll use an API or, or whatnot, and then um, this is the ERP softwares that will narrow down to say, these are gonna be the best fit based on what you do, your industry, and the softwares that it needs to be able to talk to. So see, yes. you, and you see that on mid-market too. Definitely. If not more. Definitely, yeah, and a lot of assumptions sometimes are made about what tier software and you know, or they already have in mind. These are the ones we want to look at because they've, you know, people have gotten on on Google or different websites and kind of have an idea of what they think they need. And um, and it really does depend on all the things that you're talking about. There's so many, so many factors. Um, 
I'll, I'll touch on the next one, workarounds, um, creating larger problems in the end, right? And, and can actually grow and deepen and get more entrenched over time. And it really can lead to a deterioration of, you know, culture, morale, communication across teams, all of those things that, that we don't want to see. Um, particularly with my manufacturing clients, sometimes there's just not patience for um, waiting, right? Or trying to understand how are we going to fix the process and the technology to speak to this new demand or, or you know, um, so, you know, depending on what level you're at in that organization and what your role is, you just need to get the product off the dock. <laughs> it just needs to get out the door to the customer today. And so um, it, it, it's not that people are, are trying to do anything, um, you know, devious when they create workarounds, but sometimes people are just trying to think on their feet and create um, they're, they're solving problems, you know, in the, in the moment. And over time, unfortunately, those things, people start getting more creative. They start running their own spreadsheets and their own things and all things on the side um, that other people may not know about. Right. And so that can affect, you know, what inventory is visible and just cause a lot of, a lot of issues. Right. And a lot of miscommunication as well. Um, I'm sure in small businesses, it's even more prevalent. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I think, a lot and then that does to your point the culture it kind of gets roughed up a little bit of gosh you know it doesn't work this way so we have to do this i don't really like doing this but it's what we do and instead of having some freedom i guess to say wait this is not a good workaround we need to shift and put a better plan into place people can be complacent and just say well it is what it is i don't I don't feel like changing it or I don't feel like telling so-and-so that they could. And that, and that's something too, of just looking at the culture of your company and evaluating, Hey, do, do we have a place where people have the freedom to speak to say, this isn't the best way to do something. And is it received? Do they have a platform to speak it on? Do they have a way to email and, and talk about that? And see, I mean, it, it pops up here and there. Right. And to the next one, when things need to be fixed as a Band-Aid, uh, rather than um, really looking at those root causes, it, it plays on what we just talked about, is sometimes it's easier to just Band-Aid it for right now, and then we'll take care of it at another time, because maybe it's busy season for you, and you don't have the capacity to sit down and determine, hey, wh what is really causing this? How do I, how do we get this fixed? And instead, you know, and instead of, hey, well, well, this will get us through the next three months, six months, and then we'll evaluate it then. And, and that is at times very helpful. And then other times it ends up causing more problems because it's like uh, trying to patch a hole in a bucket. Water's going to start leaking out eventually. And that's what the Band-Aid will is those those problems will come up and they may come in a, in a different way. They become worse than what they were. And that's a way to determine, hey, you know what? A piece of technology would make sense going going here because what we have today, it doesn't fix it. Yes. <clears throat> and I would say that a digital transformation is a great opportunity to right set a lot of these types of issues. 
So maybe things have gotten messy. And to Liam's uh, question or comment, um, not only using Excel sheets instead of the ERP, do you find that people will use shared file drives instead of SharePoints, et cetera, because the old is familiar, they do not um, only, then not only do you have data outside of the core systems, but it is fragmented across platforms and storage mediums. Absolutely. All the time. <laughs> yes. And it starts small as a Band-Aid and then it grows. And then somebody sees someone else doing it because it makes their life easier in the moment. So then they start doing it. And like, like you're saying, that's exactly what we end up with. And um, it wasn't intentional and nobody meant to mess anything up. It's just, uh, you know, and so my point was, when doing a digital transformation, it's almost like a do-over in a lot of ways where it's this really slowed down approach to fixing what's broken. And it's painstaking and it can be stressful and overwhelming because of the amount of information and different opinions and that kind of thing. Um, but if those process maps and process flows are published somewhere and shared, Maybe there is, like Christy was saying, is there a platform? Is there a way to, to pull together a meeting that's not an act of Congress that's going to take six months to get the right people in the room to change the process um, to where there's just this awareness of, hey, I see this problem in our process. Can we can we get together in the next couple of weeks and maybe look at these couple of points on the process map and see what we need to do to adjust? Otherwise, we're going to have to keep doing these workarounds and it's not ideal. Um, so, you know, and a lot of the process workshops and the business process uh, calls and, and conversations across the different functional areas in the organization, it's part of why getting ready for go live takes so long, right? Because these are the conversations that we're having. Um, and then the willingness to go back to the process, assuming that there are processes, you know, created and published. Um, and if not taking that opportunity, well, we're going to do it now, right? We're going we're gonna to write out the process as it is now flaws and all, how we want it to be future state, and then start to move in that direction. And to Andy's point, allowing parallel systems, old and new beyond, optimal time period will slow down the adoption of new processes and new technology, and, and it will. And going back to uh, Liam's question, even of various um, SharePoints that people have, maybe they're using Dropbox, they're using SharePoint, they're using something else, and now everything's everywhere. We have processes stored one place. We have them stored another place. Files are here and people aren't. And maybe there was a, a rule or something. Hey, we're all moving to this platform, but people are so used to, well, I just log into this. I know how to find what I need very easily. I don't want to adopt to, to something new. And that goes back to when we're talking about more of the organizational change management of how do we mitigate that so we don't get to this point. And if we do get to this point, how do we show people and train people that there's a better way to do it and get that buy-in? Yes. Cover these last couple points, and then I want to leave um, the last five minutes or so that we can have some, some more Q&A. So you guys, if you have additional questions, start putting them in the chat now. But going back to what we had talked about on a previous slide with scaling for growth when you don't have the cash and how, how do we leverage funds to be able to um, grow and growing in a way of technology and labor in product that needs to be purchased and dealing with supply chain issues. And I talked about this also on the, 
uh, Kyler and I did a talk about it a couple of weeks ago, and we were saying, you know, that the different ways you can do this is, you know, you can leverage a line of credit. And this is on the small business side. You can say, hey, you know what? I got 200K in a line of credit over here. I'm going to use that and spend half of it on inventory because I know that the, due to the shortages, if I don't have enough inventory stored up, I'm not going to be making money and I'd rather take a risk and use that line of credit and purchase the inventory I need today to have it on tap. And I know that it will pay me back twofold once it gets sold. And the same thing with labor. There's problems with people not wanting to work and you're needing the help to run your business. How do you properly get the right people to come in that are devoted to a business and, and not want to just stay there and leave after two weeks because there's a better option or they have it, or they decide, hey, you know, this isn't for me. I'd rather figure figure out more what I want to do. And it's it's popped up a lot. And you know, even with my own clients uh, not being able to have enough labor and owners, they're out there on the field working and trying to to get all of that done themselves. And it's hard when you're working in the business; you can't necessarily work on it to scale it properly. Definitely. And I guess the last point, moving from tactical to strategic, we've all said this and heard this. And we understand it from a theoretical standpoint, but um, the more tied up we get in the day to day and the workarounds and having to patch up technology and, and processes and try to fill in the gaps and um, and all those types of things. Right. We're, we're busy in the weeds and we're not able to look out into the future and get predictive and look at what our competitors are doing and be more strategic for long term. Uh, growth and success. So at the end of the day, that's what this is all, you know, lending itself toward. Um, Andy, I love your analogy about blueprints. Uh, consultants need to impress upon the organization that as blueprints are to the facility maintenance, so are the process maps to the operations maintenance. That's exactly right. Um, most companies don't have them documented formally. Um, if they are, they're not shared appropriately across all the organizations um, or they're in a bunch of different places and pieces um, or they aren't updated right so you pull up your process maps and they were created six years ago right uh, type of thing so yes the blueprints um, and really understanding here's where we are here's where we're going um, how does our technology play into that and getting all of that streamlined and optimized that's that's a great a great analogy and we do need to continue to impress that upon our clients okay thanks christy and amanda really good stuff i appreciate you doing that presentation and scaling is a one of those topics that's uh, of interest to a lot of organizations out there and most of our clients for certain um, in fact it's so interesting that kyler and i will we'll debrief and come back to some of those points that they made in that discussion but first we'll take a quick break you're listening to transformation ground control If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us 
and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 62. We just had Amanda and Christy on the show talking about scaling for growth. What were some of your thoughts uh, from that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, well, um, it, it was a great conversation and the fact that it was, they split it up, right? So Christy talked a lot about the, the small to medium-sized business and then um, those just overall best practices. And then Amanda came in with some more mid-market tactics. Um, which is a lot of times what kind of our clients look like. So I thought that was really interesting, kind of the way they they looked at that. Um, obviously, there was some very main themes of you know strategy and needing clarity around that and and what it looks like. And then also, I I loved our comments um, from our viewers too that we're talking about all of the different systems and how to pick those. So and just to kind of recap, so Christy really manages a lot of kind of how do you move out of QuickBooks, and um, she has a, a really strong financial background. If you know her from our our podcast, um, we actually did a, a meet the team with her last week um, on our Third Stage YouTube channel. So definitely check that out if you're interested in, in more of kind of her journey. But um, she she talked a lot about that, and then Amanda talked a lot about the more kind of Epicores, Infors, um, NetSuite, those options for mid market. Um, systems. So I think it was kind of a, a great coupling of kind of what that looks like to go from a small business to really uh, a, a more a more mid-market tier, which is, you know, a huge growth, not only on the technical side, but also the people side. You know, are you people ready to change and what's their appetite for change with a whole new system that might, they might have built? because you are a small business. So I thought that was, you know, a, a great kind of overview from Christy. Yeah. And in fact, it, it goes even beyond that. A lot of times organizations grow past that sort of small phase into the midsize and even larger organizations where they become saddled with the system that was built back when they were a, a tiny organization. And, uh, you know, now they're, they're struggling to figure out, you know, how do they get out of that, that custom solution? Definitely. Um, and they talked a lot about um, just overall navigating the software industry and how a lot of times that's why they're an asset to that conversation. Um, and a lot of times they, they say a best practice is investing in those services before you go down the road of selecting the software because remediation or triage services can be very expensive, especially when that's a huge risk for you because you are a smaller company. Um, it's very similar to what we talked about with Marcus Harris and just investing in that that legal opportunity to go through your software vendor contracts. Because again, say you contractually agree to something because you're a small business owner or a small to medium sized business owner, and that's not what your day to day you know um, skill set is in the amount of money and time and resources that could potentially sink your business or you know close it um, if you don't look at those risk mitigation strategies yeah yeah absolutely certain and you know you want to make sure you've got the your a risk mitigation framework in place up front but that you're also thinking ahead as much as you can i think the problem with small businesses is a lot of times they're making these decisions when they're in survival mode and or high growth mode 
and they're not thinking necessarily what is this going to look like in the future in three or five years. They're just trying to scale to get to, you know, three or six or 12 months out. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's a challenge, you know, because it, and we know that as a, as a relatively small or smaller, smaller organization, I should say, um, that is, um, going through our own growing pains as far as uh, outgrowing the systems we we've had in place. And, you know, so I, I get it from, from a business owner perspective for sure. Yeah. And, and even on the flip side, as Christy kind of mentioned, a lot of times, um, small business owners can say, okay, well, we're going to put, you know, $5 million into this new system. And they're not even sure that it's the right system for them, but have kind of gotten into the sales funnel for software vendors um, and got kind of stuck in that. So here they are spending a bunch of money that they don't know is actually functional um, or going to be a good investment. Yeah, so that's a common dynamic where you don't always know where you're headed. You don't know how things are going to look in one, two, three, or five years or whatever. So that, that is a, a common challenge and a common dynamic that growing organizations see. Absolutely. Um, and Amanda and Christy are very interesting in the fact that they make an excellent team. It's similar to our guests from last week, Teresa and Brian Lacaruba. Amanda is a very project-focused um, PM. She does a great job in really project governance and just making sure that everybody's on time, on budget, that type of thing. Christy is a, a chameleon of a consultant. We've seen her do everything from sit on interview boards for CFOs for her clients um, to, you know, actually advise in their overall finance systems, hard data to organizational change management, even to family dynamics, which we had her on Digital Stratosphere, the podcast um, for talking about the, the nuances of family owned businesses. So it's very neat to see them kind of come together. And then again, it just showcases kind of the team environment here and the team approach at third stage, because they really are a great example of putting two very different people on a project to accomplish two very different things. Um, so it's always so fun to see them together and, and how they kind of um, complement each other in those skill sets. Yeah, and it's a good way to view transformations in general. You need that team that sort of complements each other and balances each other out and provides the broad skills and uh, focus that's necessary for for a big transformation. Excellent. Well, good stuff. Well, I hope they, you know, they'll come back separately, I'm sure. Um, and again, if, if you'd like to see more from Christy and Amanda, head over to our Third Stage Consulting YouTube channel as they both are on um, a variety of different uh, assets there too. Yeah, absolutely. And again, stratosphere2022.com, you can, you can see the uh, the event that was hosted live, but you can see the recordings uh, from that event a few weeks ago. Um, so I want to thank all the guests here today for, for being here. I want to thank you, Kyler, for uh, hosting as always. And uh, thank you to the audience for uh, being part of this and the great questions you received throughout the, throughout the conversation. So we're going to um, have a new episode next Wednesday. Um, you can find new episodes every Wednesday on whatever, pad, uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening or watching on. Um, and if you could do us a favor, just share this with uh, anyone that you think might benefit from it. We'd love to get the word out and we appreciate your help. Uh, sharing this content with others that might benefit from it. So uh, I want to thank everyone for being here today. We'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Mm -hmm.